Welcome to episode 367 with my guest Jay Larson. Uh, today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace makes it easy to turn your idea into a unique website, showcase your work, blog, or publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. You can customize everything from look and feel to settings and products using beautiful templates created by world-class designers. It's simple, intuitive, affordable, and I use it to showcase my dog pictures and my music, and I love it. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MENTAL to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. My name is Paul Gilmartin. This show is, I don't know what this new delivery is, but let's go with it. This show is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. You are listening. I don't think that needed explanation. Uh, this is a weekly podcast about uh, all the battles in our heads uh, from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. The show is part interview, part listener confessions via the surveys on the website. And um, I'm not a therapist. Uh, I'm barely an entertainer. Uh, minute and 28 uh, until I took myself down. That's, that's patience. If nothing else, that is, uh, I'm getting better. I can hold this self-hate off now over a minute. It's almost like holding your breath. <laughs> How long can you go without putting yourself down? Well, I usually pass out like around 30 seconds. Um, Thank you for the outpouring of uh, support um, regarding uh, what I experienced last week at my support group. Um, for those of you that don't know, there was a shooting outside my support group last week, um, and uh, the victim stumbled uh, bleeding into our uh, into our meeting, and. Um, uh, I don't want to go into all of it here. If you're interested in listening, go uh, back to uh, last week's episode, the first 20 minutes of the episode. It's the episode with Jen Elmquist. Um, I kind of go into detail about what happened. And um, so obviously, and I recorded last week's episode about an hour after the event happened. So I was still trying to gather my thoughts and really in a bit, uh, kind of a bit of a haze. Um but I got this email from uh, Claire, and uh, she writes, I just listened to you recount what happened at your support group in the latest episode, and I feel compelled to reach out to you because I just can't stop thinking about how traumatic that must have been. I've never known anyone to see something like that, and I suppose in Australia, we're just not used to gun violence. Uh, I kid you not, I called my mom with tears rolling down my face saying, something terrible happened at Paul's support group. And she said, who is Paul? <laughs> it's strange to hear you sounding so calm an hour after something so horrific, but I'm hopeful that it helped to sit down and talk it through, particularly when you are alone, wishing I could give you a big hug. Um, thank you, Claire. And um, I did talk about it. I did stay in contact with uh, the... Uh, the men from from that uh, support group. It's a it's a men's uh, support group, and um, in fact, tonight I'm running a little late because uh, we met again. Uh, 
Nobody stumbled into the meeting bleeding, but a lot of us were really hesitant about going to the, to the meeting tonight. Um, how we were going to feel in that room, um, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, it's such a beautiful meeting, um, because it's such a safe place to be vulnerable. And obviously a lot of people talked about how, um, their week was after that or how they were feeling when it happened, how they feel now. And it was very, um, it was very helpful. And so, uh, I asked two of the guys, there was essentially four guys who surrounded the victim and helped, uh, save his life until the ambulances got there, the ambulance. And two of them, uh, came over after our meeting tonight and I recorded them, uh, sharing about their experience and um, how it's viewed through their past lives of uh, living a violent life, breaking laws, etc. Um, and I'm not sure when I'm going to air that, but uh, it was a really it was a really cool conversation. Um, it's been an interesting week because I thought. I always feel like I respond oddly to things that are intense. Um, another kind of brutal thing that I witnessed uh, two years ago I've talked about is seeing a guy get shot by the police. He was doing a thing that's known as suicide by cop, where you don't intend to shoot the police, but you make them shoot you because you don't want to kill yourself. You want to be killed. And... And I mostly felt numbness when, when I experienced that. And I mostly felt numbness when I saw this thing, um, this week. And, and I'm happy to say that the, the guy did survive, um, the, the shooting, uh, from last week. Um, I talked to my therapist on Monday and, uh, you know, I've, I've raved about her before, but one of the things that was so nice about being able to talk to her after this event was um, one of her specialties is she flies into towns when there are mass shootings and she counsels uh, people who experienced uh, it and works with the doing EMDR and all that, all that other stuff. And she said, um, what you're experiencing um is there is no normal. Every person is different in terms of how they react to it. Um, and she said some common ways are that uh, people will feel numb. Um, they will have trouble concentrating. Um, they will feel irritable, uh, sadness, um, anxiety, uh, feeling of being unsafe, unsafe, uh, hyper vigilant. Uh, they may have vivid dreams, uh, and it may also trigger past traumas to come up. And I noticed that the, the, after I recorded last week's episode, so it would have been like, I don't know, maybe midnight, one in the morning of the same night that the shooting happened. Um, 
I experienced joy. It was so weird. I was playing this video game, Home Alone, and I knocked my popcorn over. And as I was picking the popcorn up, I just kind of started dancing and making fun of the fact that it's not a big deal. Maybe it was because I had just seen somebody almost die from bullet wounds that I realized, oh, this is this is the problem on my plate right now is that I wasted a bowl of popcorn and I have to I have to clean it up. But I don't know. I just started dancing around and then I was like, what kind of, this is weird that you, that you're reacting in this way. And um and then I had my weekly hockey game, one of my weekly hockey games on Tuesday night, and that's when the irritability came out. And maybe it's because the adrenaline was pumping, um, but I was yelling at teammates. I was snapping at them, and I felt unable to um, completely shut up. I certainly tried to clamp it down. And I have some apologies to to make, uh, but I was so frustrated. Um, maybe I was hoping that if we won that game, it would I would feel better. I don't know. And the other thing that I found interesting was um, my dad passed away in, in 2006, and he was a really hard guy to have a relationship with. He was really lost in his head and his own thoughts. He was an isolator. He didn't have any friends. Um, very intellectual. Um, really uncomfortable with emotions and expressing emotions uh, and any type of intimacy. And um, and when he died, I only cried once. And it was a moment... Um, the, the one thing that my dad and I could bond over was sports, and maybe that's why I take sports so seriously sometimes, but um, I, every year I would call him uh, when the uh, March Madness College Basketball Championships were on, because I don't really follow it, uh, but he does, and so I'd always call him and say, hey, you know, who do you like this year? Who do you think's going to win? And um, uh, the first year after he died, I picked up my phone to call him, and I realized he's gone and I'll never be able to have that conversation with him again. And that's that was the only time that I cried uh, about my dad. Um, but interestingly enough, this week, a couple of nights after this shooting, I found myself for the first time missing my dad and feeling... Like, I wish he was here so I could hug him, so I could try harder, maybe, to have a relationship with him, not to get what I want, but to meet him on his terms, to not have any expectations. Um, I think because I was so disappointed by his disinterest um, that I just tended to pull away completely because I didn't want to be hurt. Um and I found myself Googling his name. He was, uh, he was an insurance executive. And uh, after he retired, he, he was very respected in the insurance industry. He was uh, an expert in reinsurance, which is something that insurance companies do to spread the risk around. You know, like if they're insuring a company for a billion dollars, um, 
they obviously could be sunk if that company has to make a billion-dollar claim. So what companies will do is they'll contact another company and say, hey, we'll give you this much of the premium. Uh, would you take that for this much of the risk? So my dad was uh, really kind of one of the one of the pioneers in, in um, bringing that back in the 60s and 70s. So all of that is to say that there was, there were, you know, mentions of him on, on the internet and, uh, he was an expert, uh, witness in a lot of court cases between insurance companies. And I found some comfort and some sadness in reading about him because I'd never, nobody ever talked about my dad because my dad was not anybody that ever left the couch except to work, but I I didn't ever really come across many people that worked with him. So it was it was almost in like a, a really minor way of him coming back from from the dead, like one last time. Um maybe that's a little a little uh exaggerated, but it it was that weird combination of of sadness and warmth. Um, so that's kind of where I'm at. I went to the meeting tonight, and this is a testimony, I think, to how great the support group is, is I felt safe immediately going back in that room because, well, for one, I sit in one of the furthest seats from the door where the guy came in bleeding, but they're just such solid guys at this meeting that if I if I had been alone in that room when that guy stumbled in bleeding, I would have been spooked to go back to that room by myself tonight. But because there's that love and that strength there, I felt immediately like I was back home. And I was really relieved because that's like one of the two places every week that I go where I know I can be me and I can relax. Uh, I've mentioned before that one of our sponsors, I talked about her recently, uh, moments ago, is uh, BetterHelp.com. Uh, Donna is my BetterHelp.com counselor. I love her. Um you can uh, go to betterhelp.com slash mental and cl- complete a questionnaire and you'll get matched with uh, one of their counselors and you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. I love it. Um, you can also communicate with your counselor uh, multiple times a week, either by video, email, live text, phone, uh, chat, what, whatever. You just need to be over 18 and uh I'm a fan, and the fact that she is an expert who is uh, called in uh, from other states to counsel people when there are large traumatic events uh, speaks uh, of the quality of counselors that BetterHelp uh, utilizes. So check them out. I highly recommend it. All right. Two things to read before we get to the the interview with, with Jay. This is an awfulsome moment filled out by uh, Dr. Dog Groupie, and uh, they are binary, and 
They write, there's, uh, been a lot of tension between me and my mom since I started putting weight to the trauma I faced growing up. Emotional abuse, neglect, and serious covert incest. I've struggled with internal battles of anger with her and the desire to make peace. During a smoke at 2 a.m., I decided it isn't her fault that she hurt me. I should just see her as a sick person who is dealing with her illness the only way she knows how. I found a sort of peace with that. It minimized the anger a little bit. I went inside to make some garlic bread and eat my feelings when I heard footsteps. Mom had come downstairs to get medicine for her restless legs. I glanced over, and there she is, totally naked except for a t-shirt. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, And then this is just a portion of a shame and secret survey. And um, so many people have shame about the things that turn them on and it's a big theme in the in this podcast but um this was this uh was filled out by a um a woman who refers to herself as uh too many cokes and uh actually she identifies as technically female but not interested in anything that goes with it um she uh has had a rough childhood sexual abuse physical abuse emotional abuse um but the part that i wanted to read um is something that I have heard other people share as a turn-on. Um, and I wanted to read this because um, I want you to know that you're not alone, that our brain sometimes um, picks things to turn us on that are really, really puzzling. And I wanted to read hers. Uh, it's actually under the, the, the question, what are your deepest, darkest thoughts? And she writes... My old boss, who is everything I detest in a human being, is not attractive at all, had poor boundaries. While he never did anything physical, our relationship constantly triggered me and made me uncomfortable. I fantasize about caving his head in with a steel beam. I fantasize about shifting the power dynamic and seeing him actually terrified of me. That said, I more often fantasize about him taking things further and forcing me into a sexual relationship with him. Nothing makes me come harder than the thought of his smug face watching me orgasm over and over despite myself. It's fucked up. And most of all, I hate that it plays right into his entitled hands. But hopefully he'll never know and is cast into the fires of hell because that way I can still masturbate to his memory. There's a part of me inside that I don't want anyone to know about because it's weird and gross and lame and people will hate me. It was so hard to be on the planet. Just doom, people-pleasing, dread. Silent, invisible, just wailing. Stuck in the grip of the obsession. Derealization, depersonalization. A suicidal ideation. I was so embarrassed and so full of shame. If I don't get help and get what I need to get. You know, I did some horrible, horrible things. Then I'm not going to be here much longer. God, I wish I could go back and undo them, but I can't. So snipers would shoot in our sides. My father was a notorious pimp in Boston. I can't do this anymore. It was kind of like Scarface. You can change somebody's life just by listening. Through vulnerability, uh, comes healing. It felt like I'd been holding a sword and shield, and I dropped them. And to this day, I have never had a better night's sleep. I started crying in a job interview saying, (laughs) and I was like, LA is hard, man. LA is so hard. (laughs) And I I didn't get that job. (laughs) 
I'm here with Jay Larson, who's a stand-up comedian. He co-hosts the podcast uh, Crab Feast with uh, Ryan Sickler, who was a guest on here a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you also got a special, uh, stand-up special. What is the name of it again? Me Being Me. me I love it. Yeah. I love it. All my uh, my first album was self-diagnosed. My second one was human math, and this one is me being me. Mm. There's always a, a bit of a uh, you know alter ego or whatever overtone yeah. to my um, things, or under undertone maybe. Yeah. What a side tone. Side tone, yeah. yeah. People don't say that much. There's a lot of room on the side. <laughs> Tons of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, where, what, what, give us some broad strokes of the stuff that you, uh, have struggled with. Obviously being a comic, you're crazy. Uh Um, isn't that funny with, with standup comedians, you just like anything can be said in a room with standup comedians. And then once you step outside of it and you're with like regular people, you're like, Oh Jesus, you just can't, you just can't say that. Yeah. You can't make jokes about people falling off buildings. Yeah. Or, I mean, or worse, you yeah. know? Oh, yeah. Um, but, you know, it's funny. Like, I closed my special on a 10-minute story about my dad passed two and a half years ago, and I went home and, like, went through all this stuff. But I hadn't seen him. I'd seen him once since I was 12, and then I went home and went through all this stuff. So, my whole my whole life has kind of been defined by the fact that this dude you know, left me and my brother and my two sisters when I was two and kind of was like, I'm done. You know what I mean? So you really pushed him that hard. Yeah, dude. When I was, you know, (laughs) that's the thing. You know, it's funny. (laughs) Here's one of the greatest things I've ever heard in my life. I haven't done this on stage yet, but I got to one time. My oldest sister said to me, she goes, you know, mom told me I was the only one conceived out of love. And I think it's maybe the funniest thing that anyone's ever said to me. Like, what are you? You're bragging about that? You're the only one? Everyone else was an attempt to keep the marriage together. And I was like, all right, well, what do you want me to do about it? You know what I mean? I'm an adult. Um, yeah, did you think my self-esteem could go lower? Yeah, what, what do you think that yeah, was going to do? Saw a little wiggle room in there? Why are you beating it now? Why are you beating me down on that now? Um so that was like, that's kind of was the thing that's like defined my whole life. And when he died and I went home and like, I went to like his, his house and saw his wife and I was like, Hey, you know, she knew who I was because I met her when I was really young, but, um, going through his stuff and then all that kind of like gave me closure on him. Mm-hmm. But, you know, weight was always a thing, you know, for me that I always struggled with, um, outside of the thinking that nobody loved me because the guy who uh, created me essentially was like, nah, I'm good. I'm bored by this one. Yeah. Well, all any of us, you know? And there were so many, like, stories. You know what's funny? Tell me what you think about this. So there was this story in my family growing up that one time my sister wouldn't finish her orange juice, and my dad poured the pitcher of orange juice over her head. And everyone's like, he poured the pitcher of orange juice over her head. Now, I'm the youngest of four, and my parents split when they were 27, and they divorced when I was two. So that means, like, at 25, you had four kids. I have two. I'm 41, and there are days that I just want to, like, throw one through a wall. I would never do it, but, like, I'm like, all right, yeah, maybe you poured orange. Like, it must have been... I would have... Who the fuck knows? (laughs) So... 
I used to host this TV show, and we like had like a production dinner, like crew and talent, everybody. What was the show? It was called Best Bars in America. I would go around the country and drink in bars at like cities everywhere. I think I saw that on show. Esquire Network. <laughs> I think I love I, how you say that. I remember I, watching a show where somebody would like dr- get to drink all of these great drinks. Mm-hmm. It was, and, I co-hosted it with another guy, Sean Patton. It was on the Esquire Network. We got two seasons out of it. It was super fun, but oh, I, I remember. I wasn't drinking at that. I was sober then, but yeah. I remember thinking, if I were still drinking, this would be my dream job. Yeah, it seems like it would be. I mean, yeah. everyone. I mean, people we met were like, "That's an insane job." You're getting paid to drink, and yeah. you're drinking top shelf liquor at the best bars. At the in, best bars in every the best, the coolest cities. You walk in, you have two seats waiting at the. You know what I mean? It's yeah. awesome. Um, How'd so, you fuck that up? The network went under. <laughs> You drove him under, Jay, just like your dad. Just like my dad. That He called. He actually phoned it in. He was like, you might want to. <laughs> yeah. This isn't going to end well yeah. for you guys. Yeah, this kid's a piece of work. Yeah. Get out too now. Much. I, I knew when he was born. <laughs> um, but we're having this like production dinner, and this girl I'm sitting with, who's a producer, we're all chatting, and she goes, you know, one time when I was a kid, my sister didn't finish her orange juice, and my dad was so mad at her, he poured the pitcher of orange juice over her head. And I go, Really? And she goes, yeah. And she goes, and to this day, we still make fun of my dad for that. And he gets so embarrassed. And I'm like, the same thing happened in my family. And they turned my father into this satanic man because of it. I'm not saying it's a good act by any means. Right. But I think there's like two different ways that you approach situations. Like my wife was out of town. She'll travel for work and I travel for work. So it's, it's a hectic schedule. We got to balance it. She was out of town and I had both the kids. My son had a breakdown right when he got home at five 30 and then I got him calmed down. I got them, I got dinner going on the stove. Mm-hmm. Everything's dialed. I'm like, Oh, I'm going to get them bath in the PJs to have dinner. So then all that's done. He doesn't want a bath. He breaks down again. He's hungry. My daughter's fine. I get him in the bath. Everyone's calmed down. And then I'm like, all right, I'm going to put, I'm going to go get River ready for bed. I'll come back for you. And he's like, I don't want to be alone. And I grabbed his face and I go, what do you want me to do? And he started bawling again. And I'm like, all right, come. You can, you can stand in the middle of the room soaking mm-hmm. wet. I get them both ready. We go out to eat. And he goes, are you happy, daddy? And I go, come over here. Sit down. And I go, you make me happy. I love being around you. I go, you're the greatest thing that's ever happened in my life. One thing you got to know about dad, he runs a little hot. That's who I am, dude. This is who I'm going to be. Just understand that it's never about you. It's always about me. And don't take it personal. And he's like, okay, dad. Like, he's three and a half, by the way. It's not like he's going to be like, oh, I totally get this. But at the same time, I was just like... If I just explain, if it's just explained that dad has a little bit of a temper or, or he gets, you know, he's ex- easily excitable. He's got a chip on his shoulder. This is who dad is. Then things when dad snaps a little, you're just like, ah, it's dad being dad. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it was just like this eye opening thing for me with him to just explain to them like, hey, this is who I'm going to be. I'm going to work at it. So I'm not always like right. that. But at the same time, you're a human being. Yeah. Let's not try to always we all we do in this world now is try and change things to fit the way we want them to be instead of accepting them for what they are. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Go to a restaurant, have a shitty meal and be fine with it. You know, don't I'm never going back there again. Why? Because it wasn't perfect for you? Shut up. <laughs> uh, 
Go back to the orange juice thing. Yeah. Uh, first of all, was it pulp or no pulp? Because that makes a difference. Oh, that's a big difference. Yeah. You know, I mean, that no pulp, whatever. Yeah. It's like water, but the pulp. Yeah. Fresh squeezed, concentrate. If it's fresh squeezed, <clears throat> he, he should be in jail. If it was from concentrate, you let it go. I mean, let me tell you this. So we were a divorced household. It was always from concentrate. I don't know what yes. it was pre when there were two two incomes coming in. I have no idea. But uh, it was always that frozen little thing out of the freezer that you'd put in, you'd add water to, right. which was crazy. So your point in comparing it to the other family um, is is that you think you're contrasting the fact that it wasn't a big deal because the bar was so much lower in your family or you think nowadays uh people don't give give parents enough leeway to um have meltdowns no i think that it's like you know it's like what's that saying like perceptions and you know everyone's perception is differently seen differently depending on who's seeing it and it's like the comparison I'm making about my son and him letting him know I run hot is like, I'm not saying I'm going to pour orange juice over his head, but if it's like, you can approach things like, what have you lost your mind pouring orange juice? Like, and everyone mm-hmm. laughing about it and st- or demonizing the, pr- clearly the families were in different stages. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Ours, my family ended in divorce and then eventually like abandonment whereas this other one the parents are still together and they still make fun of the dad and he's embarrassed by it right so i just think it's like you know even even if it wasn't going to be a divorce situation it's just approach like how we approach things i I think a really important thing is what was the consistency in that family like if if the the other dad was consistently an even keeled dad and this was a blip on it that's much easier to laugh at than if every day dad was humiliating somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I don't know. Yeah. I was two. You know what I mean? I yeah. was two when he bounced. So I've only seen my parents in a room together one time, mm-hmm. and they fought. I was like eight or something like that. My yeah. dad came to the house. Did your, When your dad left, did he drop the mic? He sure did, yeah. yeah. He dropped it. Um, so he left in class. Yeah, but then he came back and picked it up and made sure oh. he took it with him. Oh. You know what I mean? So he was cheap. He wasn't cheap. He just, I mean, I think he got cheap because he just had no money because he had to like, you know, there was one time he was like, I'm taking care of you kids and my teeth are falling out and I'm paying for you to, to get your teeth fixed and blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, dude, I don't know, man. I'm, yeah. You had me, fuckface. Yeah. What do you want me to do? I'm 10, dude. You're not I doing me no- a favor. This is your boilerplate uh, responsibility yeah, he- as a father. I think that, you know, I think some people get trapped in that, like, you know, I think it's real easy to be, oh, this happened to me. Right. Instead of taking responsibility to be like, oh, well, this is, you know. He did tell me one time, he's like, you know, I just saw your mother, she had big tits, you know? So, and You've that's- You've got to be kidding me. That's what I was, you know, I was just 19. I was like, dude, tits? Come on, you fucking idiot. So, uh, where, where were you uh, raised? Massachusetts. Where about? Stoneham, Mass. is about 15 minutes north of Boston. And uh, Ryan is from Rhode Island? Where? Maryland. Maryland. Yeah. Okay. But, you know, there, this. It, I guess he's technically the south in Maryland, even though Baltimore feels like an east coast kind of place. Um, 
but yeah, we had a lot of some, you know, they're both kind of like, uh, people that just sit around and talk. Like people tell me all the time, they're like, were you the funniest person growing up? And I'm like, no. Have you ever been to Boston? Everyone's hilarious. Everyone's telling a story. Everyone's yapping in your face. Everyone's, you know, like Mm -hmm. you wait in line at Dunkin' Donuts in Boston. And if someone's taking two minutes too long, someone's going to chirp up and be like, let's go. What are we doing? You know what I mean? So, um, we just kind of, you know, Ryan and I just hit it off because we're both storytellers and we both, Mm um, I mean, I'm a little more blunt than Ryan is. And I think that's what he likes because he's a little more laid back because of that that's that southern element that Baltimore kind of takes. It's so on. funny. I have never thought of Maryland or Baltimore as southern. Below the Mason Dixon line, I've never seen a map, so maybe that's Isn't where the problem started. If people say things to you and you're like, yeah, 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 like oh, you know what? If you if you got, if everyone got real about it, they're like, nah, I don't know where Idaho is. Yeah. Like my friend lives in Idaho, and I go, why? And he goes, well, you know, my kids are in. You know, Washington, so... And I was like, what, are those close? He's like, yeah, they're right next door to each other. I'm like, oh, I didn't... Yeah, I wasn't looking into that. I was... We had uh, neighbors uh, one time, and uh, they they asked, where, where are you from? And I said, Illinois. And, uh, and they go, isn't that by, like, Wyoming or something? And I just, I just thought, wow, you... You are the product of a really shitty school system that that's not even they didn't even know that there was a lake. Actually, I'll forgive that. The people don't know that there is a lake uh, in in Illinois. The Chicago borders on a gigantic lake, um, which but, is the scariest thing to look out at ever. That lake when you're in Chicago, it looks like it looks like the end of the world, that lake. You know what I mean? You can't see the end, but it's not an ocean. Mm-hmm. And there's almost like no, uh, there's no like, you know, like when you look out the ocean, it almost feels like you can see the earth around it, mm-hmm. even though some don't believe that. But with that lake, it just looks like this flat abyss and you just like, it, like it's just going to fall off and you're going to drop mm-hmm. off the planet. And and the wind coming off that thing, uh, you know, they, they call it the Windy Sea, but it's, it, it's serious. There were some times where I was downtown and the wind was so strong that I had to lean forward like a foot, my, yeah. like my head a foot in front of my feet to make any headway. Yeah, man. Yeah. I'll tell you, I grew up in Massachusetts, which is cold. I've lived in New York, which it can get cold. I've been in Chicago with no snow and been like, this is the coldest fucking goddamn. Because that wind rips through your rips. bones. It, it rips. just goes through your bones. Yeah. Disgusting. I would never live in that. <laughs> that. <laughs> I go to the Green Mill though. It's a great That's bar. It's a great in Chicago. bar. Yeah. It's a great bar. Yeah. A lot of great places to go in Chicago. Um So what what are the biggest issues uh that that you struggle with? Obviously your your temper. Um it's so funny. I never even said that, but now you're in I'm like, "Oh yeah, I guess I do have a temper." I do totally have. I feel like it's a chip on my shoulder that just transforms into a temper, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I also have a little bit of that thing I think my dad had where I'm just like, everyone else is fucking wrong but me. You know what I mean? I, all the time I'm like, what is this ass? And like, the worst is like in driving situations, I see someone doing something and I get righteous. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? About you're doing it wrong. You're in it and I'm right. And then five minutes later, I'll do exactly what that person did because it benefits me. Right. Which I'm not saying all of us don't do that. Right. 
But the worst was the other day, I'm like driving and this guy's using the carpool lane and it's just him. And I was like, no, man, fuck this bullshit. Like, th- Did he have stickers? Because you can do it if you have the stickers. I know you can, yeah. but I didn't see his stickers. Okay. So I pulled up next to him and I rolled down my window and I go, you're in the fucking carpool lane, buddy. You can't be. And I just like, kind of like, I didn't flip him off. I just gave him this thing. And then he pulled up. And they sped up, and he was like the sweetest looking dude, like in a like in a in a plaid button down, and he like yeah. speeds up, and he goes, "I have EV stickers, <laughs> I have EV stickers," and like he was so hurt, and like he didn't like flip me off, he didn't yeah. swear, and then he drove off, and then I sped up again and got up right next to him, and I go, "I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry." <laughs> But I'm, I was yelling with the same anger that I had back before. Because I was so mad at myself. I'm like, what do you care, first of all? Even if he wasn't, didn't have those stickers. You know what I mean? What do you care? It's so funny because it's you can know intellectually you're being a jackass, but that lava still needs to come out. Yeah, it's it so hard sitting on the lava. Yeah. It's so hard. It's weird because I bottle it. Like, I, I just tuck it away because I can be completely calm, you know, chill. Everything's fine. Keep my composure when I need to. And then it finds a way to, like, get out. Okay. And I feel like it ties together. Like, weight, like I said, has been an issue for, like, probably 11 years. So I just can't. Like, when you <laughs> you pulled up, I'm out front sucking back a bag of Doritos. And a, I, went in, I went into a 7-Eleven, okay? Mm-hmm. And I'm like... My go-to is like they they do. This is gonna be the craziest thing you ever hear. But tuna sandwiches out from Seven Eleven. Seven Eleven are fantastic. I don't know what it is. The bread's moist. They got a little sweetness to them. Any gas station tuna sandwich is slamming. I'm just gonna say it. And then I got a I got um a bottle of Coke mm-hmm. and a bag of Doritos. And I asked the guy when I'm checking. I'm like, Hey, do you have a bottle opener for this Coke? And he's like, No, clearly. You know what I mean? We're at Seven Eleven. So I went out front and tried to like knock it off the mm-hmm. the thing i get the top off glass breaks i'm like well i can't drink this coke so then i go back in and get an aluminum one and then i go to i'm paying for that and i'm trying to open the tuna fish and like the tuna fish sandwich almost falls out and i grab it like all these signs saying like don't do any of this dude <laughs> i save the tuna sandwich and i'm like then my mind goes see you can eat all this <laughs> And then I put it back in. I got my can of Coke. I'm going to get in the car. I drop half the sandwich on the ground. <laughs> and, I'm, and I, you know what I said to my, in my brain? I just said, see, even better. You just have half the sandwich now. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. I just can't say no to it. That's the biggest problem. It's I yeah. try all the time. I'm like, just say no. Just don't. Eat healthy. And I'll go, you know, I'll have like streaks, you know what I mean? And do well. And then, you know, my wife and I are like, well, let's just, you know, Let's just let's let's go healthy again. Like we've done it together. Mm-hmm. And my therapist is like, I think you need to do Weight Watchers. And like my, my pride is like, I'm not. Who am I? Dan Marino doing Weight Watchers? <laughs> I just was like I can't. And it's like I mean I never really talk about this because it's like I'm embarrassed by it. In all honesty, you know, like because I can't get control of it. And people are like it's so easy. Just stop eating. And you're just like I don't think it is that easy. I'm sorry. I think and you're I, you're really like you know underestimating this. I think when the eating comes from a a, a place of emotional pain or discomfort, I think it's really hard. You know, yeah. I was sharing with Jay that uh, I sometimes have trouble falling asleep if I don't have uh, something sweet right before. Before bed, yeah, and uh, I know it has to do with 
emotions probably. Yeah. But uh, knowing I every spoonful of ice cream going into my face, I'm thinking, this is stupid. This is not healthy. This is the worst time you could be eating this. Yeah. But uh, after I get a couple of spoonfuls in my belly, something, I feel like somebody just sang a lullaby to yeah. me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yeah. When when did food become an issue? You said about 11 years ago? I mean, well, put it this way. I quit smoking. I turned 30 and I got into a long-term relationship. You know, like I moved in with my wife. So, like, I had battled weight. Like, even in high school, I was always in shape because I, but I played like, I played two sports and I played year round. You know what I mean? Yeah. I was on like two teams. So, I was always, at lunch, I would eat. I'd get two cheeseburger meals with fries with milks and I would still just like be in like decent shape. I mean, decent. I was in very good shape because I was an athlete, but I was always house and food. I just ate whatever I wanted. I didn't know it was some kind of like therapy or like suppressing, you know, is that because I never drank in high school. I never smoked. I didn't do any of that. Then I went to college, started drinking, started smoking, continued eating, put on weight, moved to L.A., took off all the weight, then put some back on, then went. Then it was just up, down, up, down, up, down mm-hmm. from that point on. But I was smoking cigarettes, you know? And when you smoke cigarettes, it's a stress reliever. It's a food, you know, depressant, like, mm-hmm. or appetite depressant. So I would literally get up, I'd go to the pizza shop at like 10 in the morning after having like, I don't know, five cigarettes, have two pieces of pizza, a Coke, and then I wouldn't eat again till like night, you know? Because mm-hmm. I just smoked cigarettes all day. I think you should be a nutritionist. I mean, I think it's a strong move. Ryan's seven or not Ryan, uh, Jay's Seven uh, Eleven nutrition shop. Do you just meet him right out front. You don't have to pay for office space. Nothing. You hand him a tuna sandwich. Uh, you say, "Come back and see me tomorrow," and yeah. you're gonna you're gonna hear uh, step two. That's all you need, man. Uh, but it was for me. It was these were my addictions, or like you know my uh, I guess my way of rationalizing that I don't have an addiction to any of these things. I would say like things that I would just like abuse was spending money, cigarettes, food, and like booze. I've always drank, but I never, it's never felt like, you know, I need it. You know what I mean? Like I didn't, I don't have a drink today. I won't probably drink all week. You know what I mean? I don't even think about it. If we go out somewhere, like my wife and I went to dinner, I'm like, Oh yeah, I'll grab a beer. But that was never something that like controlled me. Food has owns me what what are your earliest memories of food and it being more important than just something necessary to give you fuel i mean who knows it's it's big in all my my whole family first of all what sports did you play soccer and baseball okay boy soccer will burn some calories burn like crazy and our soccer coach was like all about running we sprinted we did more sprints than anyone. We we when I started high school, the team had one win, and then my sophomore year we had one win my freshman year, three wins my sophomore year, then junior year we won eight, and then we won nine, and now they've won like four state titles. You know, really? Like, yeah, they just started progressively getting better and better same and coach? better. Same coach, yeah. same coach. But this he brought this other guy in who like was all about running, and we'd be sprinting, and like every team would be done with practice, and he's like. Last five minutes of the game, you're going to be the best in-shape team, you know. True. And so, like, I could eat, you know, I could house everything. But, like, my mom was overweight, and everyone in my family struggles with weight. So, I mean, I don't know where it comes from. I don't know if it's genes, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Or if it's, I don't think it is. I think it's just, like, we've all used it. 
Um, I mean, I, I don't think it's my Nana used to be like, you know, you eat everything on your plate. I don't think that was it. You know what I mean? Who, who was like that? My Nana. My grandmother. Oh, okay. Yeah. I didn't was, know if you said Nana or Nanny. No. I was like... There was no it, Nanny. There was some chick, Bonnie, who would come over and sit eating a bag of ruffles on the sofa while her kid played with us. She was the most depressing lady of all time. But, like, we would come home from school and it'd be either my grandmother or one of her sisters would be, mm-hmm. like, there. But it was never... I, I never remember, like, needing food back then. It, I think it was more like... As I got older, it became a thing, you know? And I also feel like foodie culture, you know what I mean? That's kind of like transformed and taken off. I was never like... We were never like that as a family. We would just go to like wherever. You ate whatever it was. I never even used salt. I never used salt. I saw a kid in college use salt. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, what do you mean? I'm putting salt on this. I'm like, why? It's, it's, this is what it is. And he's like, oh, this, no, this needs salt. And I was like, oh. You know, fancy. Fancy. Could you with Might your well salt. Stick, stick your pinky out. God. Um, yeah, I, I think it was more like as I got older, then I just started like seeing what food was. And then like, I think it was like pressure of like what I was going to do with my life. And was I going to be a success or a failure? Because none of that stuff ever really concerned me until I became like 30, 32. When I started being like, oh, what are you really going to do? Like, how long are you going to be in this game and you see all your friends are buying houses and they're like starting their lives and they're having kids and I'm still like you know as a comedian you know it could take you till you're 50 60 you know some guys I mean Rodney started at 40 years old when he Mm -hmm. started stand up so like I think that's when I really started becoming a thing for me is when I started feeling like the pressure of like what I was going to be in the world you know do you feel like food is your number one go-to for emotional discomfort? Hundred, yeah, yeah, easy. What are the thoughts you think to yourself about yourself as you reach for something that you know you're eating out of discomfort? Oh, you're a fucking pussy, you fat fuck, shit like that. I'm like, you're such a fucking pussy. Like, if I'm passing a McDonald's and I'm feeling like I will. When they combined breakfast all day round, because my fantasy, no lie, was two sausage, egg, and cheese McMuffins with fries and a Coke. That was my <laughs> fantasy because you could never get the fries. Now you can get the fries. You know what I mean? Like I would, I would love taking early flights out of LAX because I knew I could go to Mickey D's and get sausage, egg, and cheese and fr- uh, you know biscuit or whatever that thing is and a Coke. Like getting a Coke with it. I mean, and I would just the whole time, my mouth would start salivating. I'd be speeding up. That's when I'd beat a light. Like, let's fucking go, dude. Like, if it was like 9.58 or whatever <laughs> whatever their cutoff was, it's... I've tamed that down at least a little bit, but I still find it wherever I can. I'm like, oh, it's so easy. Like, I, the only reason I went tonight was because I had, you know, I got this job that I go to tomorrow... And I'm already thinking about it, and my wife leaves on Wednesday till Sunday, so I'm going to have the kids, and one of them has like a recital at school that I'm going to miss, and our nanny has to pick the kids up from school, which I don't like. I like picking them up every day, and it's just like, I'm there's two new people getting in the writer's room tomorrow, and I'm like, oh my God, am I going to be good enough in the writer's room? And I've already said to my wife, like, hey, I'm going to need to go to my office tomorrow morning at 7 so I can look over, I want to look over all the notes from the first week that these other people weren't there to, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I think it was just like all that leading up 
Tuna sandwich. Tuna sandwich. But there wasn't that wasn't enough. I knew I was going to get a Coke, and they don't have 12 ounces of can- Cokes anymore. It's got to be these 24-ounce cans. It's just garbage. It's just so stupid. What, what's the show? Um, it's called Crashing on HBO. Crashing. Pete mm-hmm. Holmes. Pete Holmes is the star. Oh, okay. It hasn't come out yet, though, has it? Yeah, season one has come out. When did it come out? Uh, the beginning of the year, I think. Season two is already shot, and we're we're working on season three right now. Judd Apatow produces it. Yeah, I, I remember seeing ads for it, but... Uh, it's really cool, man. It's yeah. really... I mean... I don't know. You, have you ever had Pete on? No, I've I've extended an invitation a couple of times. But I mean, uh, you guys would rap real never, well. He's so smart. So many people have said you have to get Pete on uh, on your podcast, or you should go on Pete's podcast. Yeah, but uh, I don't know if he has a problem with me, or he's just busy. Yeah, he's or just what? busy, dude. He's yeah. so smart and he's so funny, yeah. and he's got crazy perspective. Um, yeah. It's really fun because I used to like share an office with him in New York. And see where he is now. And like I sit across the table in the writer's room and I'm just like, Jesus Christ, man. It's so, it's awesome. It's an awesome feeling to see how far he's come. Even though the first night I saw him, I was like, I remember saying to someone, I go, who is he? Because he was so funny to me. But now seeing him like really round everything out in his life. Um, But, you know, there's like, you know, so many things that will come into like the stress my kids wouldn't go to sleep tonight, and then I see my wife getting stressed, and then I got to leave, and I'm like, you know, we just put up the Christmas tree. You just want to stay. I want to, like, lay on the couch with her with music on and stare at the Christmas tree. And I'm like, well, I'm stoked to do this. No, I have to do that in the morning, and then I know she's going to be gone all week. I know I won't be doing stand-up all week because that way I have to hire a babysitter, and I don't. I want to be home to, like, put the kids down, and it's just, like, all that, like, you know, and then I literally will go, oh, so starting tomorrow morning, you will be 100% consumed until Kate gets home on Sunday morning. And then you can take a breather and then she'll go out of town again on Tuesday. So, so you're just like, feeling overwhelmed. Yeah. It's like just, there when I an, get overwhelmed, it's just crush. There's an avalanche coming at you that you are incapable of dealing with. And that's that's kind of what your head tells you or what? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, this or one... Or is it just a vague dread? It's dread. It's just like... I mean, I, it's, I, I don't think I'm incapable of it. I know that once I get in it, I'll be better. And I'm, be, I'm getting a lot better in my professional life of just telling myself, chill out, dude. You're fine. Everything's fine. Like, You've I'll, gotten this far. Yeah. I mean, I, what it started with... Two and a half or three years ago, I, I shot this movie, and it was like a 13-person cast, and everybody was an established actor except me. I, Someone fell out. They met with a couple people that they thought were really funny for this dramatic role that had like humor in it, and I never auditioned. I met the director, and she really liked me, and she's like, I got a good feeling about you. And I remember like the first two days we just rehearsed and I was like sweating like crazy and I was so nervous and I just had like this mantra going, they picked you, they picked you, they picked, and I have to like, so that was like the first thing that like springboarded me into just feeling like, oh, it's okay. It's okay to be good. I think my whole life, I just, every situation I was in, I mean, I played college baseball. I, I can, I, I think maybe 30% of the time I was at bat. I was comfortable. 
the other 70% I was like you're going to strike out you're a loser you're not good you're you, this is you nope mm-hmm. this guy's so much better than you and dad probably loves him they probably have money he you know what i mean mm-hmm. that was so it's i'm still learning to be okay i just bought my first car ever it's a, it's a new used Okay, mm-hmm. I don't bl- I don't believe in buying That's called new. Newsed, newsed, <laughs> dude. You gotta you gotta <laughs> copyright that. Um, I have been driving a 2004 Explorer. I bought off my buddy at brunch for fifteen hundred dollars, and it's like full of junk. My son always said, "He goes, Dad, you have so much junk in your car," and my front door doesn't open by that. You have to reach out through the back door and reach around. And I'm like, I just I said to my wife, I'm like, I'm just gonna be. The, I, I see myself as that car. I'm like, I gotta get a car. And she's been telling me for years to get one. I just couldn't pull the trigger. It like gave me anxiety, like going out, looking at them. I want to like, didn't want to make a mistake. You know, anyway, I, that, that, I was just going to say, it seems like running through your, um, emotional life, it seems to be this fear of doing something wrong. Hundred, I mean, that's, see, this is where it gets tricky. Because as much as it was really easy to blame my dad for stuff, my mom, who's a really phenomenal woman, she raised four kids on her own at, at 27, never never date, never went on a date after my dad. Wow. She made everyone play an instrument. Everyone did sports. Everyone did Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. We never had cable television. We never had call waiting. We went to museums. We went to ballets. We went to symphonies. We sat in parks and watched people. I mean, wow. We know where the fork goes. We know where the knife goes. We, I mean, we can all pick out a china pattern. I know what bone china looks like. Mm-hmm. I know what crystal sounds like because my mom was just like into that shit. That's who my mom, I think my mom wanted to be a Kennedy, and I think she thought my dad was the ticket. You know, I think she thought he came for money, which he did. He, his, his, my grandfather was a very smart guy, and he worked his ass off. And But my dad was not like that kind of guy. My dad was like, you know, he was a blue-collar dude who just wanted to have a family. And so I think there's a level of, like, uh, expectation to be perfect that my mom put on everybody, especially since I think... I think my mom may have thought that, like, everyone judged her because she was this woman with four kids on her own. Mm-hmm. You know, like, divorce wasn't a super familiar thing. I mean, I only knew one other kid who was divorced growing up, and he had a stepdad. And his stepdad was the shit. Yeah. His stepdad, like, sold candy for a living and played AAA baseball for the Red Sox. You know what I mean? You were like, wow, yeah, that dude's the best. Yeah. So... I think a lot of that, like, trying to be perfect thing comes, that, like, came from my mom, not my dad. And I think, I think it was coupled a little bit with, like, I just wanted to tell my, be able to tell my dad, fuck you. Like, I remember in college, I would walk across the campus in college, and I just pretended he was watching, like, from a tree or was, like, keeping up. And so I always walked with this attitude that, like, I was, you know, like, fuck you. Yeah, like, fuck you. Like, I'm confident. I got it together. Went inside. I was just like, melting down in a way and had you know nothing really to stand on you know i i all i thought about was who i should have been had my parents stayed together you know what i mean uh-huh. instead of just being like hey this is who you are because they didn't right. you know and it just was always this like undying question i almost feel like i didn't really start to believe that i could live until he died 
you know, really? like two and a half years ago. Yeah. And it's funny because I said to my mom one time, I was home visiting her. We were, th- we were thick, me and my mom in high school. Like we were close because I was the last one in the house. And I always, my whole life, like people say, how'd you become a comedian? And I was like, I think the first day I realized like what my role was in this world, we were on vacation in New Hampshire and my brother and sister were like running off to go play video games. And I was running off too. And I looked back and I saw my mom, she's overweight, walking by herself. And I was like, she's got nobody. And I just let them go and I hung back and I just played with her. And it was like, that was always my goal is to make sure my mom was happy, to make sure she laughed and always looked out for her. Um, I got lost in that's there. A, that's a big burden to put on yourself as a kid, though, you know, to be yeah. the, the kind of the emotional uh, conservator of, uh, Dude, I of took a it, parent. Yeah. Well, I took it all on. If... In fifth grade, in fifth grade, dude, I took uh, newspaper money and went and bought like a at Caldor, which was this like like a Kmart kind of thing, or like now Walgreens or Walmart or whatever. And I'm like, we need new glasses. Can't be having these glasses in the house. We need, I need water glasses. I need soda glasses. I need juice glasses. And I like took my money to go to Caldor and bought like a set of glasses. My mother's like, why'd you buy these? I'm like. Because Nana keeps breaking all the glasses. We need new glasses. If, like, the dining room door broke, I tried to fix it, even though I had no idea how to fix anything. I just took on everything. Like, I'm the man of the house. These are the things. These are my responsibility. And I love... I mean, I've lived in L.A., I don't know, in, like, 10 different places. I've only lived in an apartment one time. I always had to be in a house. I'm like, this is a house. I live in houses, dude. I'm going to have a house. I still rent... You know what I mean? <laughs> rent the house, but it, you're I in rent, a house. But I'm in a damn house. What do you think the fear was if you didn't get the glasses or comfort your mom or that she was the last uh, thing keeping it together? And if I she falls mean, apart, no, I don't ever. I I don't think I ever looked at it as fear. I think I always looked at it as guilt. I felt so guilty. Like, why should I be able to have happiness when this poor woman can't? That's my mom. You know what I mean? Like, your mom. Like, I see the way my kids are with my wife. And, like, tonight they're, like, clinging to her. Like, I need mommy. And I'm like, what about fucking dad, dude? <laughs> I made dinner. to. I made breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I put you down for your naps. I got the Christmas tree. I decorated the tree. Like, what is going on here? But... It's something about that mom. Like, they need yeah. you need your mom. And, like, for me, my mom was a fucking superhero. You know, you would ask me a couple things whenever we get into it. But, like, I've been down, like, my mom spit in my face one time. Like, she's a hardcore. She had to be the father and the mom. But, like, at, at that really young age, I just looked at her like, I didn't know any better. I just knew her. Like, that was the only person in my world. I didn't even know I needed a dad or there was supposed to be a dad. I knew that other people had dads, but didn't didn't register to me. I just knew that I had this woman and we, my Nana was around and my aunts were around and that's all I knew, you know? Like, I think I probably pushed a ton of shit aside and then lived and coasted, moved to LA, and then all of a sudden when I turned 30, I started like, oh shit, I'm living with a woman now and we're... I'm still bartending. Like that's where like tons of stuff like rose to the surface, you know. Like my dad was my dad was right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, not quite that uh, succinct, but the, the feeling of inadequacy that maybe um, I, I would imagine um, a lot of kids who is who have a parent 
a parent that abandons them. Even kids who have a parent, you know, my dad was at the end of the couch, but he abandoned us. Yeah. He had almost no interest in our lives other than seeing that we got to college and, uh, you know, we had food and a roof over our heads. Yeah. Um, it, he, it, it was a struggle for him to get out of his head and invested in somebody else's life yeah that's interesting i think i think that you know, kind I, of sends a message to a kid that there you uh there needs to be you're not enough yeah, yeah. as you are yeah you know it's funny too i'd never even thought of this till just now like i always wanted bad things to happen to me so that i could feel justified in feeling as shitty as i did isn't that crazy? I just realized that. So many no, so many people have that. They fill the surveys out. So many people wish that th- something would happen so they'd be in the hospital so that the outside would match the inside and that people could come support them and they wouldn't have to ask for help or Man, love. Yeah. Super common. Yeah. I, I mean... I, Heartbreaking, I mean, but super yeah. common. All my idols were black mm-hmm. when I was a kid. Like, I felt like... Um, discarded and just wanted native american i like these i like attached myself to cultures that were like oppressed or held away and i was just this white kid whose mom was very artistic and uh creative and opened us to tons of stuff but all i ever wanted was like just shitty stuff to happen to me like i would wish things on my nana i would i used to wish that she would die so I could get attention for it. Then I would like wish that I got hurt or like I would like I just told my wife this last night. I didn't even know. She said something about like we were driving and she goes, isn't it freaky that like if you just like dozed off, you could just drive into another lane. I'm like, I'm not even going to tell you what I used to think up until like up until like 34 years old. I had to constantly tell myself not to jerk the wheel while driving so that the thing would roll and roll. And like I would just like. I would believe like um like I still I believe that if I did that I still wouldn't die. Like I would just the car would be totally wrecked and I would be fine. But just to know that I had the control to just do that because mm-hmm. I just always felt like I always just felt trapped inside this idea of either how people saw me but didn't know cuz I always played you know as a comedian you're playing it cool at all times to like keep everyone thinking like you got the coolest stuff going but they have no idea like Robin Williams man when Robin Williams died I just go I said to my wife I'm like yeah yeah I don't think a single comedian sense. was surprised no when that no not a way. single comic was surprised no not at all I think you're right I, I got scared yeah. I'm like I <sighs> That might be how I go. That's the first thing I thought. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm just like him. I try to put, make sure everyone's happy except me. I told my therapist one time, I'm like, my ideal situation is to have all my friends over, introduce them all to each other, and then fade away and let them all become friends with each other. And that they maintain their friendship with me by the fact that they're now friends with each other. So I don't have to be friends with them. They can be friends and then they just keep in touch with me. So... It seems like responsibility is also an issue that's kind of triggering uh, for you sometimes. The the like there is almost a you don't want to be cornered by responsibility. Like you want to be able to make an exit if you if you want to. Sure. I, am I putting words in your mouth? No, I don't that, think so. Okay. I mean, I like responsibility, but at the same time, I've I mean, I was never good at you know what I mean. Right. I'm 41. I still have student loans. 
You know what I mean? Like I postponed that shit. Like I just, I drove around with no car insurance for, I don't know, eight years. No car insurance, no health insurance, no. De- I didn't go to a dentist. I remember one time I went home. My mom was like, "You got to go to my dentist. You have to go to a dentist." And they were like, "Jesus, dude, you need deep so cleaning." Self, self care is a is a struggle. Yeah, I just don't, never gave a shit, and I never, I was never one of those guys. Like, I didn't think I'd be alive at forty one. Yeah. But then I thought back, and I'm like, oh yeah, I, I never had a, a a plan. I was just like, oh, I'm I'm funny. I I want to be creative. I'm not gonna live this like life. Back in Boston, I'm like, I want to just go out and I I just always felt I had something greater to offer to the world than just to stay and get some job that someone else created that you're just filling a role for whoever they are, you know? Yeah. What were the issues that brought you to therapy? <sighs> I mean, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I mean, I was just constantly depressed. I'd get upset. Um, you know, no one, I couldn't relate to anybody. You know, I, you know, I also like. How long ago was this that you went to your first therapy? Oh, I mean, my mom put us all in therapy. My mom put us in a, in like this place where when my parents split or like later on, I don't know how long in. Where like they had us all play in a room and like five doctors were walk, watching us through like double mirrors or whatever mm. um and monocles and monocles it was a very high-end yeah very place. yeah, yeah. very good one it was guy the opera that, actually you were on stage it was we the were opera on stage yeah. they were balcony guys um <laughs> but they you know the first one is my my wife suggested it like when we we're living in new york and i went to a psychoanalyst and it like her brother knew this guy because he took a he took a course in psychoanalyst. So I started going to him, and I really liked it. I just liked the idea of being able to sit. I tell everyone, I'm like, I don't give a shit if you're fucked up. Go to a therapist just so you can bitch once a week to someone who is forced to listen to you. So I went to and maybe even enjoys it, which I think a lot of therapists do. I mean, I'm sure. I think the majority of therapists want to help. And uh, a lot of them can come up with a good game plan, notice things that you don't notice, or at the very least, you're letting off steam. Yeah, exactly. Actually, that wasn't the first, actually. I used to go to this, like, spiritual healer who, like, that was, like, my first foray into it. And she was, like, and I thought of it was more like a life coach trying to, like, because I just was, like, you know, in in comedy, you just don't. There's no path. There's no no one to tell you. Oh, you should do this next. You do this. You just kind of follow what the world puts in front of you. And there's nobody to lean on. No, nope. it's you. It's all you. Then you find people you think you can lean on, and then you try to, and then they back away because every single comedian has zero capability of being a compassionate or normal human being you know what i mean and once they feel weakness in you they think that you want something from them it you know it was just so i would go to the spiritual healer then i met my wife then i I went to the psychoanalyst then we came back to la i started going to this one therapist who was great then i stopped tried to go back she had moved went to this other guy he was a fucking idiot Mm -hmm. an idiot he was the only bad therapist i've ever had and stopped going to him and then started going to this, the woman I go to now, who's mm. the best. She's the what best. Do you like, what do you like about her? She's honest as hell. You know what I mean? She's just the most honest. One day I was like, hey, can I just pay you cash? And she goes, yeah. I used to sell drugs for a living. I love that. <laughs> you know? And 
one time I was in there talking to her like about my marriage and I'm like, I'm not saying I go, I'm not saying I want to fucking have anal. I'm just saying like, let's be open to stuff. And she goes, have you ever done anal? And I'm like, no. And she goes, it's very painful. And I'm like, I don't want to hear about how you've had anal. <laughs> but she's just like, she's just real. You know, yeah. like there's nothing. She won't let you get away with shit. You know, mm -hmm. she, which is awesome. And she senses if you're saying something and she sees something underneath it, she stays with it. And mm -hmm. I don't think she sticks by guidelines of what she's supposed to be doing. She uh, just, it doesn't sound like it, no. but it sounds like it works for you. Yeah. I yeah. just kind of just what I want, you know, I yeah. just want someone who, I mean, I'm a pretty upfront guy mm -hmm. and I love having that from someone else. And, uh, I respect it. I just respect it in people in general. Like, I tell people, I'm like, I don't care if someone tells me, like, something rude. I'm like, if they're being real and honest, like, I just way more comfortable for me, mm -hmm. you know? But one of the things I found really comfortable, comfortable and relaxing about Germany was they are the No one's least... ever said that, by the way. Yes. <laughs> they are... The least pretentious people I've ever met, or the least phony people. They are the most literal people I've yeah. ever met. They say what they mean, and they're baffled when you say something insincerely. Like you, you say, uh, you know, how how you doing? They think that you genuinely want an answer as to, uh, as to that. Yeah, and uh, so there's there's something that I really like about that. Um, Plus, it's just a beautiful country. Yeah. I, had, I went to a coffee shop one day, and uh, I say to the guy working, I'm like, hey, man, how you doing? He goes, good, good, man. How you doing? I'm like, ah, honestly, it's not great. Kind of like, you know, I was hoping to be a better day. And he's like, oh, all right. And I was like, what, dude? You just asked me. I'm telling you. I don't understand. Do you need me to tell you it was a good day? I'm like, I'm not saying it's a terrible day. I'm just saying, you know, it's not a great day. Um. This was. This is the most because it's too awkward for awkward for him to say. Boy, do I regret saying it back to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I would much rather appreciate. Yes. I would laugh my ass off if yeah. he said that. Um, I think everything came to head for me with therapy. Was I moved here in two thousand? Moved into an apartment in Hollywood. I had thirty two hundred dollars when I moved to L.A. Bought a car in San Diego for eight hundred. Drove it up. So that brings me down to uh, what. 2400 Yeah, 24 It was an $800 a month place. I had to give first and last, 16 That leaves me with eight. I bought furniture. Car died. <laughs> I had no money. Went to a dealership, like a, like a used car dealership. And they're like, we have nothing. I told them, like, can I get anything for like, you have anything for like $2,000? They're like, dude. They go, we have a trade-in. I'll sell it to you for $1,800 and you can, you can do payments but we can't guarantee the car. And it was a 1991 Geo Metro convertible. And I was like, I'll take it. And I started, so that's all I had. That was like my money. That was everything. After six months, I moved into a house that I couldn't afford in Venice Beach on the boardwalk. And in four months, they kicked us out because they were going to raise the rent. And I had nowhere to go. I had no money. And one of my roommates was an architect he had just bought a house that he was going to tear down and build like his like mm. his his stamp on the world as an architect and he goes dude you can live in this house if you want um i won't charge you any rent i'm going to be gone for seven months raising money there's no uh there's no hot water there's no kitchen and there's no shower uh if you want it, it's yours and i was like 
All right. And I lived there for 14 months. And I wrote two screenplays. I started stand-up. I started therapy. And I, like, really, like... I had nothing. You know what I mean? I just wanted to be bare. And, like, I exposed myself. I would go through, like four-day bouts of depression and I never did anything but sit in it. I used to sit in the depression and be like, I need to know who I am inside this shit. You know what I mean? Everyone's always like worried about getting out of it. I'm like, just be in it. So being in it, what what was the payoff of being in? And I'm a big believer in not running from your feelings if you can sit through it. Yeah. Because a lot of times there will be insight or just a catharsis of, of it goes through you and then it's a lesson that oh my feelings aren't going to kill me they'll uh sometimes a change in perspective will help uh to speed it up or sometimes there's nothing to do but just write it out and uh do nice things for yourself yeah what what did you glean if anything from it i mean well every time it was different there were times where i would like finally like drag myself out of it other times it would go longer than i thought i um, you're talking about the depression yeah yeah that's when I reached out to my dad for the first time since I was 12 mm-hmm. and I was living there. I, I called him and like had like, I talked to him once on the phone and then started emailing with him. It's with the first time ever I started like, um, seeing that we were very similar people. Like in his writing, I saved all the emails from him and like our writing was very similar. Like, mm-hmm. I, at the time, I was doing tons of creative writing, like poems, and like I was doing things called alley sits, where I would go sit in in Venice. You know, there's all these different alleys, mm-hmm. well, LA in general, yeah. and I would just sit and like write poems and stuff. And he would write me these emails, and I'm like, man, this dude is so sick. He's fucking dope. <laughs> He's super cool. Yeah. But I hated him, you know. So like, I was like learning to like kind of accept. I, I, I actually I, I didn't learn to accept that th- this is just who he was. I just I I started to like him at least and understand that it's okay for me to like things about him, and that's something I totally like. Really came to like when I saw him when I was thirty six. That was the only other time since I was twelve that I saw him, and he gave me some things. And one was a box of old baseball cards because he knew I liked baseball, so he gave me all these old cards because he was an antique dealer. They were all like you know. Not in good shape, but amazing baseball players, all greats, all Hall of Famers, and I just I got like I got them all framed and I put them over my son's changing table and my daughter's, and now they've all they've learned who Frank Robinson is, who Ted Williams is, who Rod Carew is, who Roberto Clemente is, Felipe Alou, because I have all these, and like at the end of the day, like at some point, Mike, they're gonna be like who is your dad? Like, and like, these are from my dad. And then I'm trying to find like positives about that person to then tell them at the same time, I'm going to, at some point tell them like, you know, he just didn't, I eventually grew to the point where I was like, he just didn't have the mental makeup to be a man uh, or to, to be, uh, to be a father, you know, like, yeah. I don't want to say a man and, and say that women can't also like step up and be a woman. Like your right. role as a woman or as a mother, his yes. role as a father, he couldn't handle, he didn't know how to, or it was too much for or him. Or chose not to. Yeah, yeah. Or chose not to. It's funny that you say that. Cause it's almost like, I don't ever want to even believe that he wouldn't have chosen it. I just believe maybe it's easier for me to exist that he just couldn't, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I imagine it's kind of like the thing that you tell your son, it's not personal. 
the anger is not personal. Yeah. You know, I think yeah. you're, I've, I've never heard of a parent abandoning their family because of the characteristics of the children. The children. It's yeah. just more the work involved, the yeah. lack of, uh, freedom or whatever, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, there were times when I was, like, thinking about my dad. I'm like, oh, I mean, it it's it's it plagued him. It definitely plagued him. When I walked around, you know, his space after he died, he, there were, like, tons and tons of art pieces that he made symbolic of having four children. You know yeah. what I mean? Oh, yeah. Four Barbie head dolls stacked on top of each other on top of a baseball that he put together. Um this like he had like a little studio tiny kid stuff in fours were everywhere so he had a separate apartment from his wife because her son moved home when he was like 50 and my dad was like i'm not living in a house with a 50 year old man he should be living on his own so he got his own apartment but every day would be at her house and like working in the garden and he had like a sculpture a barn that he converted into like where he like did his art and when i went to his apartment it was like the most depressing thing in the world. Like he was living in squalor. Did you feel good about that? I would have felt good about that. I felt bad for him. Yeah. I felt like he was like, I felt like he was punishing himself. Mm. That's what it felt like when I walked in there. Like there was a fish tank that was like a quarter full with the filter running. (laughs) And I was like, dude, how long ago did you die? You died two days ago. What the fuck is this? Um, and it was, I mean, it's just a mattress and box ring on the floor, but like, like David Lynch would have designed the inside of his apartment. You know what I mean? It was just it was just horrible. Like windows were like um taped with plastic over them, you know what I mean, yeah. to keep it warmer in there. I don't know how much heat he had. It was an old schoolhouse and it was just like it was it was it was a scary place, you know. And I stood where he died. Like there were like wrappings from like what the EMTs had ripped out like to work on him. And I remember, like, standing there and, like, thinking I was going to become overcome with emotion. Nothing happened. I just didn't feel anything. And then, like, I was, like, walked into his closet and he just had, like, a bureau in there with four little tiny, four little tiny, like, wooden statues, like, an inch high. And I'm just sitting there like, dude, what the fuck? And he had over his workbench, um, tomorrow, a sign that just said tomorrow. And I know that's, like, a... That's an AA thing, you know, like, mm-hmm. oh, tomorrow I'll have a drink. Mm-hmm. But he never drank. And I looked at that, I'm like, oh, were you going to, like, reach out to your kids tomorrow? Was tomorrow going to be the next day that you, like, f- called? You know what I mean? The guy was a grandfather to three, four, five, seven kids, you know? No relationship, no relationship, nothing. It's just crazy to me that you were walking the earth and had relationships with all these people, yet... The four that you made, you just, and it's, I see myself maintain patterns of like what he did with like, I'll have, like one problem I have is I'll have friends. I've had really close friends tell me like, dude, you're really hard to be friends with, man. You're really hard. Your expectations are way too high. Because I give and 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 give, which is like, I think a trait that I used to do to my mom. And then the second I feel like I don't get it back, I'm like, fuck you. And I just b- I'll bounce on people that I was like super close with. 
Whereas my therapist tells me, mm-hmm. she goes, oh, maybe you just need new friends. I think every five years, maybe, new friends. And I go, you think people do that? She goes, oh, yeah, people do it all the time. You know, you just, you just if you're not getting back what you need, you should just move on mm-hmm. to new friends. And I'm like, that's crazy. I don't even, I didn't even know that was a possibility, you know? I just thought like, oh, you had friends, you build these things, and then you maintain that forever. And then my, you know, but clearly it's not. Yeah, to me, it's a, pro- a process of, upgrading emotional emotional upgrading yeah. of friends people that are less and less problematic less and less toxic or selfish or you know clingy or whatever whatever it is but a lot of times i wouldn't know what it what was possible out there in friendship yeah until i got into support groups and that set the bar for me yeah um because of the amount of trust and connection and vulnerability. And, uh, yeah, I look back sometimes at some of the friendships I had, and I was like, that person annoyed the fuck out of me. Why did I hang out with that person? Oh, because they liked me. Yeah. That is not that is not enough for me to hang out with somebody yeah. these days. Yeah, but how do you determine when, like, I... I, I it's funny because I like if people usually like me I'll hang out with them but like there are people that like I try to hang out with you know what I mean and then they don't reciprocate and I'm like what's going on I'm I'm liking you you don't like <laughs> like why is that move on I've I've experienced that it hurts I, but I've gotten better at it like on. just being like oh they don't they just don't like you but I'm like it doesn't I, I don't understand or, or you might not have something to offer that they're looking for in a friendship. Yeah. You, you might not be powerful enough or you might not, you know, what, whatever. Yeah. Who knows what it is? But uh, like you said to your son, it's not personal. Yeah, I know. It's not personal. Do you read the four agreements? Is that something you've read? Or um, lived by? I have, I have not. In fact, I I'm haven't. not even really, f- I've heard them mentioned, but I'm not, what are they again? I don't know. I bought it because I was going to read it and I never have. And, 7-Eleven needs to put it under the tuna sandwiches. Dude, right there, I'd have five of them. Yeah. And my buddy told me, he's like, oh, yeah, you know, we were talking about something one day, and he goes, oh, yeah, the four agreements, man. One of them is, you know, just don't take it personal. You can't take things personal. And I'm like, oh, and that's something I've, like, really put into my life the last four months. Like, stop. Don't take it personal, at least work-wise. And and traffic. Definitely haven't taken it to the traffic level yet. You know what I mean? Mm. I will. After, now now yes. that I have a new car. I think it's the best place to practice it. In traffic? Yes, because th- without a doubt, it's not personal in traffic. Yeah, it There's is not no doubt all. it's not personal in You know traffic. what? I think I get more annoyed that it's not. Yeah. Like if someone does something stupid and then I, I always, I'm the guy that always pulls up next and look, I have to see who the fuck it is and I have to like make eye contact. Mm-hmm. And if they're not even aware that I'm trying mm-hmm. to do that, I'm like, they don't even know? You don't even know you did that? And that's where I'm like, I, it should be personal. Do you know what what trigger that is to me? Because I have that trigger is feeling invisible, feeling like I don't, oh, yeah. don't matter. That that uh, hits something deep, deep inside me. Yeah. When I feel like everybody has just gone, I'm I'm forgotten. Yeah. Ooh. That makes sense. I didn't even think that was that. Yeah. But what event in your life would you relate to that about? <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Uh, anything else you want to uh, talk about or share? Uh, I mean, I made you. You had mentioned the uh, fears and loves. Yes. Yeah, oh, good. Like yeah, yeah. Hit me with some. Yeah. Let's do fears first. I mean, 
I mean, biggest hands down. You know, it's so funny because my whole life has been defined by my dad and then leaving home to go try to be something. You know what I mean? I moved here to be a writer and an actor and then fell into comedy. By the way, what was the name of the movie? The Invitation. It's called The Invitation. It's a thriller. I think I've heard of that movie. Who, who, uh, what names are in it that I would recognize? I mean, Logan Marshall Green, he's one of the leads. Emma Yatsi, um, uh, Mikhail Hauschman, who's on Game of Thrones. Karen, Karen Kusama directed it. Okay. She directed Girl Fight. And the writers are like big time writers. They okay. wrote, um, Clash of the Titans and they wrote Ride Along and Ride Along 2 and this crazy thriller. Um, not not giant names, but everyone is like super talented. Um, but my like my I, I think my biggest fear is like I always wanted to have a family. That was my number one. I had kids' names written down in the back of my notebook in fifth grade. But like my fear career is that I'm just not going to make it. Like I'm not gonna, you know what I mean? Like I'm still every year piecing together like ten to twelve solid gigs that help pay the bills and my wife still works full time and we like pull together and I'm just like fuck like be, maybe it's that perfection thing that like you have to be you have to like be famous I don't even care about fame I never wanted to be famous here's the thing that I I have noticed is it's not about what we have or don't have it's finding comfort in not knowing that we're going to get it or lose it Yes. Being okay with the unknown. Yeah. Because, you know, my therapist would say to me, if you, if she was sitting in front of you, she would say, Jay, what are the facts on the ground? Mm-hmm. The facts are on the ground are you've survived 41 years. Mm-hmm. You are, know how to make this work. Doesn't mean there aren't going to be wrenches thrown in things, but for 41 years, you figured out how to make it work. Why would that change? Oh, I mean, I have no idea. But I yeah. would be like, who gives a fuck? Everyone's making it work. I saw a homeless dude that's 65. That guy's made it work. And how many incredibly rich people have you seen that are miserable, have taken their lives, totally. have children that hate them, have yeah. had six marriages? Um, no, I know. A lot. I get that. Yeah. I mean, I... I th- one of my first reasons I ever wanted to even be on a television or in movies or anything was so my dad would have to see me. You have to listen to Dave Anthony's uh, Anthony's episode. Oh yeah, oh yeah. It, it's the the mirrors between your two lives. His dad was an alcoholic. Oh okay. Um, but there's a there's a, a moment in the episode where Dave Anthony says, um, "I sabotaged my career to spite my father." So he wouldn't have anything to brag anymore at the bar about. Wow. <laughs> Good Lord. I'm the opposite. I was just like, anything to get on TV just right. so... You know what? You want to know the irony? Right. He didn't have one. My dad didn't have a TV. He didn't watch TV. And he never saw any of it. Yeah. I think the guys he worked with at his antique shop recorded me on Conan one time and then brought it in and played it for him in the shop. But otherwise, he didn't see shit. Um but it's just that fear now of being gone so long and like wondering if I'm ever going to be able to even just support my family on my own. Not that that's important, like, you know, because my wife works. I just am like, fuck, 
I don't know. I mean, I know it's petty, but it's like a... I, I think it's totally human. A fear of being like a, a loser and getting to that point where people like finally validate your art and like, yeah, here's like, here's your job, you know, for the next mm -hmm. five years. Either it's a TV show or a movie or something that where I can finally be like, oh, okay, I'm here. And then it's going to change to, I need to never lose their validation. I need Jeez. to not lose what it is that I have. And that it's like if you don't decide what you have is is not necessarily enough, but if you can't find a way to appreciate the present moment, um, it doesn't matter, I think, what comes your way because the negative part of our brain is so brilliant, it will find a way to pick anything apart and attach a fear to any situation. I think of Howard Hughes. The guy was the wealthiest person in the world, and or one of them, and because all of his monetary problems were solved, his biggest fear became germs, because yeah. it was the one thing he couldn't control, and so he became obsessed with yeah, with germs. It will your brain will find something. Yeah, I, th I think it's about finding a way to turn your brain off and still show up. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I, if I could just just have a job for the next fifteen years, so that and know that my kids can go to college. Let me make a call. I'll make a couple. Of yeah, calls. make a couple of calls. I appreciate yes, that. Yes. I know you get that kind of pull. I mean, look at the studio. <laughs> <laughs> um, and losing the weight is is the thing that scares me probably the most because I think at the end that of the you're day not gonna lose that the I'm weight. not gonna yeah. yeah I don't think I'm supposed to look like this you know what I mean I think that my personality who I am is not this it's just like I don't know I feel like every time I I just I don't know yeah I just don't know how I'm ever gonna do it it just seems insurmountable that's the one thing that seems insurmountable everything else I can get through but the weight thing just constant what if you would it be the worst thing in the world if you never lost the weight? Is that no? But I mean, I just feel like um, I don't know. I'd like to give it to my wife. You know, like I'd like to be like, "Hey, look, you fucking deserve to have a guy who's not a fat mess." Has she expressed disappointment in your current physique? No, I mean she's supportive of me either way. Yeah. Um, I also would love my kids to grow up around someone who takes care of themselves because at the end of the day, unless you're genetically thin, which I have friends that are, you have to work at it. And yeah. so the oh, people yeah. that work at it, it, they fucking work at it. They're doing the work. So for me, it's like, I feel like I'm doing the work and I just, I want in my life, I work, mm -hmm. you know, to be a good father, to mm -hmm. be a good comedian. And I feel with that weight, I'm like, you just got to do, it's just, it's the one thing I give myself to like be like, nah, you fucking go ahead, take that can of coke and do all that shit. And I just get afraid that like I, you know, how many times in the last ten years I've just like I may die right now. Currently in my garage are boxes of clothes that are dated from May of 2017 for when I was supposed to start wearing those clothes again. You know what I mean? I do. I have I have clothes that uh, are yeah other sizes that that i wore yeah and that's tough just deciding whether or not to keep them or throw them out and some of the smaller clothes i threw out i was like i'm torturing myself yeah with this i mean i had them set up where like i was gonna go on diets and by this time i'd be that weight that i could wear them so now like they have the dates sitting in the garage it's so depressing to even see it 
but I just keep, I feel like, I kind of feel like, I don't know if you ever felt this way, if I can beat that, I'll be able to do anything I want. Your brain will think of another thing that you're not good Thanks, enough man. at. Thanks, man. I appreciate it, you bringing it, that up. It, it will. It will. You're, if you don't decide that your brain is a noisemaker, it serves us in a lot of ways, but in many ways it is a squeaky wheel that just wants us to think about ourselves. Yeah. And that detracts more from life. There, I had an epiphany one day that nothing degrades the quality of my life like obsessing about the quality of my life. Yeah. If I could just show up, try to be a decent person, and be considerate to others, that's 90% of it. Just give it a good shot. Whatever I'm doing, give it a good shot. Fuck perfection. Yeah, fuck uh, perfection. Yeah, now... If if I could do that every day, that would be awesome. But I get better at accepting the fact that I'm never going to be the weight I want or maybe never be the weight I want. I'm never going to, may never have all of these things that I think I need to be able to relax and go, okay, I arrived. Yeah. Because my brain will, will come up with something, with something else. Yeah. Getting treated for addiction is a really good way to see how fucked up your ideas about uh, yourself and how you view the world and your place in it are. Because you have to do it to live. Yeah, for sure. But then those tools are there for you on the job, in traffic, all these other things. And there's... There's, I think a happy life requires about 500 surrenders a day, and a lot of those are internal surrenders with how we, the things that we expect from ourselves. Yeah. Uh, have you ever so. sat down and, and made a list of all the things that you've done in your life that are good? Oh, well, I mean, so like I make, every year I'll make a list of goals for that year, and mm-hmm. then I'll get crazy sometimes and just make month goals as well. King of Monaco. Yeah, I've always wanted it's to go It's May, to and I'm not king of Monaco yet. It's amazing yeah. that I haven't done that. Um, and my buddy was like, do you ever consider the same dude who brought up the four agreements, like what you've done? And I'm like, that's a good idea, dude. And I went home that day, and now each year I'll write down like, oh, this is what I accomplished. So it's not just about like what I'm trying to do, but what I did. So, I mean, I do do that, good. you know, good. not on the regular, but, you know, maybe that's a... I like that idea. I forget to do it. More. I forget yeah. to do that. I forget to do gratitude lists, and I get into the... Uh, I just look at everything that I'm not, that I think I should be to be quote unquote, a successful human being. Yeah. And it, it's, it never works. I've never met somebody that has beat themselves up into becoming a better person. Yeah. No never, way. never. Yeah. Let's do some fears and loves. Cool. I hope I wasn't uh, being too uh, pontificating about that. Are you that, kidding me? That well, stuff. No. What okay. do I? Sometimes I feel like I'm uh, an, an annoying know-it-all. Not at all. I mean, uh, I, I mean, I would tell you if I thought you were. Okay. I mean, well, or, I told or you, you'd tell others once you left. Either way, word would get out. A hundred percent. So you know those fears about supporting my family, mm-hmm. losing the weight. Um, another one is that I'm going to fuck up my marriage. You know, that's just like I look at my dad and I'm just like that's. All the time, I'm like, I'll find something. You know what I mean? Even though I was never a fuck-up, I was a fuck-up because I always saw myself as a fuck-up because Mm -hmm. I thought I wasn't worth anything because this guy didn't care about me. So I just thought I would fuck things up. 
and I wasn't really a fuck up. You know what I mean? I was never really a bad kid. I, you know, I wasn't, but I've always just seen myself. Even now, I'm just getting to the point where I'm starting to like, you know, at certain clubs that I'm like, you always tank at that club. You always, you don't like that room. Now I just step on and I do them, and I'm like, oh, like I don't know, I don't know what switch turns. You know what I mean? I think like after you like you break down that. Um, whatever you like that barrier that you created to think that that thing's better than you, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but yeah, it always lingers in the back of my head that somehow I'm going to find a way mm. to fuck it up. I always love, uh, when somebody that books a club no longer books that club and you notice how different they look to you because they used to hold this power yeah. of they are, they give you stage time and then all of a sudden, you know, they're doing something else and you're like, Oh, that's just a human being. Yeah. That's, I can't well, believe I, like, cared so desperately what this person thought of me. Well, there's a dude that books a, a very big show, uh-huh. television show, uh-huh. and he used to book another television show, and before that he booked another one, and before that is when I knew him, and he was cool, and then he never booked me on any of those shows, and I was trying to get on one of them, because my special was coming out, and it was like this, like, dance thing again, and I was like, fuck him. I don't need that fucking show. I could give two fucks about it. And that was like a huge point for me because I was like, I'll just do it on my own. And my mom, the one thing she used to say to me when I was a kid was she's like, everyone you see on the way up, you're going to see on the way down. Mm -hmm. So wherever I see that dude again at some point, I'll just always know like, because I've done TV shows before doing stand-up and if people like you, they will be like, hey, this isn't right, but let's work on it. How about if you did Mm -hmm. this? Let me see what else. And this dude has never taken that approach. One time he did with this weird thing, but anyway, it was good for me to be like, no, I don't care. I don't care if I get it. Let's do loves. Let's go to loves. Okay. Well, I mean, my family, you know. That's obvious. Yeah. But you know what? I was thinking about it. I love my kids, but I almost, this is probably crazy to say. So don't quote me on it, even though everyone's going to quote me on it. I think I might love being a dad more than I love my kids. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that makes sense. It's it's, it's, it's like a, a job. Like if I could have one job, that would be the job. I would imagine being a parent would give somebody the strongest sense of self they've probably ever had because there's probably so much meaning in being a parent. Yeah. I mean, I love it to death. It's like my favorite thing. Um if I was getting paid for it, that'd be insane, you know? Yeah. But that's never why I would do it. It's, I do it because, I mean, there's parts of me that, like, um, I don't just look at my parenting as, like, what I do with the two kids. I, like, try and find ways to share it, like, in my stand-up because I want to share it with more people and make them aware that like what things are okay because I feel like I do a really good job at it and I feel like I have a good sense of what parenting should be even though I have no I don't I didn't study to be one I, I'm just going on like what I wish I got when I was a kid I think that's great and so um, but I love my kids to death I'm not give saying me, I give don't. me some moments uh, from being a parent that uh, you you think highlight that feeling of loving being a parent. Um, I'll just give you, I don't know if they highlight that feeling, Mm -hmm. but, um, or whatever springs to mind. Um, there was this one day on the playground, my son was trying to play with these two girls and they go, get away. We don't want to play with you. And I was just like, oh man. And then they go, ah, we don't like you. And I go, maybe he doesn't like you either. 
And then he just like he was really upset about it. And there's another yeah. time, and I haven't seen him have an interaction like that. Yeah. And then yesterday we went swimming at the beach two days after Thanksgiving, swimming in the ocean, and they like they they took bulldoze all the sand into these big dunes because mm-hmm. it's winter time, and we're on top of the dune. We've been sledding on the dunes mm-hmm. and then swimming, but we put a little like umbrella up there, and like our names were all there. And we were packing up. Everyone had left. And my son already went down the hill. And there was two boys playing. And Reed went over. And they go, they go, uh, get away. We don't want to play with you. And he goes, no, I won't. And I go, you tell him, Reedsy. Hold your ground. <laughs> and I was so proud of him. I'm like, yeah, you could tell him. Don't, no, don't. And he yeah. just stood there. It was weird. Yeah. Like, you know, people don't want to be around you. Um, but he was just stood his ground. Um, I mean, it's it, it's... I mean, how deep can I get on what I love? Well, you know, actually, the things that are are, are kind of um, uh, just small, small loves, small detailed little loves, like you know, maybe the way the I don't know I street mean, lights on your street look, you know. Oh, uh, well, I mean, when, I have you know, something like that. Billions. Just give of me those. a couple of those. Let's just go back and forth. Okay. You know I mean, just little little things in life that you love. I love the star stickers we put up in our kids' room. So when you stand in their room, they glow and like the room has like a little hue to it. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, I love because this was just after Thanksgiving. The look on a turkey when the skin is perfectly browned. Oh, and I I love ripping all that skin off and eating it. Oh yeah. Um, I love cold weather. We don't get enough of it here, so when it gets cold, like tonight, it was cold. I made it's awesome. A, mug of hot chocolate and Ooh. walked around the neighborhood with cold air and hot chocolate i love sitting still and just listening to the sound of water either a fountain or a stream yeah dude 100 yeah. fucking percent my neighbors have a fountain i take the kids over all the time i used to make fountains and I love fresh water. I love fresh. I do used to do a joke that there's two types of people, fresh water and salt water. I'm mm-hmm. fresh all day. St- streams, lakes, rivers. Mm-hmm. Um, I love working in my garage and opening the back doors to the alley and the the random chance that someone's going to drive down it. I mean, if I could just work in my garage every day, I could live in that damn garage. You know what I mean? That's when you know that you don't need anything is when you sit in your garage like, I could just live in here. Yeah, yeah. I, I love. I, I would work also. Yeah, I read that on the on the uh, in the process of getting. Um, you do like Danish type of, shit, right? Um, I like mid century modern yeah. stuff. Yeah, um, I have to have you over at the shop once I get yeah, uh, things up and running. Yeah. Um, give me another. another oh my god, I love uh, walking barefoot through cold grass. Oh, especially like a golf fairway or a golf green. Yep, no question. The, it's sex for your feet. Yep. Um, dude, I mean, I could. I love sitting on a blanket outdoors, like at night and the sun's going down, picnic yeah. at the Santa Monica Airport Park with my family. Uh, I love cold sheets. I love mm, clean, um, cold, clean, clean sheets. cold sheets. Oh. I love shower sex. Sorry to get oh, personal with you. This is the nothing's off limits here. Um, what else do I love? I love driving. I love driving. Do you ever live in New York? No. The, th- the shittiest thing about New York is you don't drive because if you don't drive, then you're not singing. When are you singing in New York? In your apartment? No, nobody wants that. You can't sing walking down the street, but in LA, you drive, you listen to music, you sing. 
I love that. My mom um, used to take us for mystery rides. That's what she would say. When you don't have money, you go for mystery rides. <laughs> and I'd be like, where are we? She's like, it's a mystery. It was like the town over. So now that's what I do. Like, we'll drive home from breakfast and I'll just drive. And my wife's like, where are you going? I'm like, I'm just driving. And so we'll go home. Sometimes I'll, she'll be driving. I'm like, just drive for a little bit. And she's like, okay. And she'll just start driving, and she'll look over and she's like, what's the matter? And I'm like, where are you driving? We bike these streets. Don't take us down the streets we bike. Give us something different. She's like, you only want to drive. And I'm like, whatever. Let's just go. Uh, let's do Let's do one more, uh, one more each. Uh, I think it's you, right? Yeah. I love... I love taking a uh, in hockey taking a wrist shot, and you know that you couldn't you couldn't have executed it any better because you almost can't believe how fast it came off the blade, and you know there's a chance that you'll you'll be able to do that shot again, especially when it hits just underneath the bar, the post. And and goes in. It's just one of the greatest feelings. I'll match that with I love hitting a eight iron, one hundred and fifty five yards when it goes and it sucks on the sticks on the green, then sucks back, back towards the pin. I love that. I love. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, golf. I mean, I know what you mean in sports. There's those moments where you just if everything feels good. I love playing catch. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Having a nice game of catch. I love cooking dinner for my family. That's one of my favorite things in the world. I love when you when you hit the the perfect golf shot or the perfect slap shot, or or you know hit uh, in baseball hit hit a perfect uh, shot where it you know, almost feels like you didn't hit anything, anything yeah. because it was so perfect. in the sweet spot yeah. and it uses the the force of the stick or the bat or whatever. Yep, and you know you couldn't have done any better. Yep. I love when I get on stage and I tell the first joke and I realize, holy shit, I already got him. Isn't that the best feeling? And I love when I'm in the middle of a joke because I'll do longer stories and I can tell that everyone is so on board. I already know what the punchline is and I know that I just have them on a string Mm -hmm. waiting to get them to a point that they're going to laugh harder than they had so far with me Mm -hmm. and that they're going to leave their remembering what they experienced that's a that's a great one what a what a good one to end on because we'll we'll mention your uh your special uh it's called me being me and mm-hmm. where can people find it at jlarsoncomedy.com okay we'll put that link up on the uh on the website awesome man thanks jay yeah man thank you i love having a guest especially comedians who bring the funny but also bring the vulnerability, and I don't have to try to pry stuff out of him. Many, many thanks to uh, to Jay. So go check uh, go check his special out. Uh, today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Uh, you know, audiobooks are great for helping you become a better you, whether you want to feel healthier, get motivated, or learn something new. And with an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more, Audible has all the audio content you need to start your year on the right foot. I highly recommend a book I downloaded and I'm about three quarters of the way through. It's called Fire and Fury. It's about, uh, by Michael Wolff. It's about the current administration and a behind the scenes look at all the characters involved, all the people coming, getting hired, getting fired, all the drama, all the personalities. Fascinating, jaw dropping. 
Check it out. So whether it's on your phone, through your car, from a tablet, or at home on an Amazon Echo, you can get through tons of books while doing almost anything. And Audible even lets you switch seamlessly between devices, picking up exactly where you left off. I'm a big fan of actually living, uh, listening at 1.5 speed. Uh, I love it. So start a 30-day trial and your first audiobook is free. Go to audible.com slash mental or text mental to 500-500. That's audible.com slash mental or text mental to 500-500 for a 30 trial and free first audiobook. I think that, that they meant to say a 30-day trial and free first audiobook. Uh, you can do it with audiobooks. Many thanks to uh, to them for uh, advertising with us. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, this episode is uh, also sponsored by Squarespace. And I got an email from a listener who uh, wrote, uh, Hi, Paul, I recently used your promo code to create my own website on Squarespace. I'm a 22-year-old artist studying in New York and creating the site has been an important part of de- developing my career. Uh, and then she talks about the podcast and how she likes the podcast. Uh, but I wrote her back and her name is uh, Emily. And uh, I asked her, well, you know what, maybe if you're okay with it, I could read uh, your experience uh, when I do a, an ad for Squarespace. And she said, of course. So she wrote me back and she said, my experience with Squarespace was surprisingly straightforward and quick, despite not being a particularly tech-savvy person. I've already gotten so many positive reactions uh, on how professional it looks and how great my work looks on it. Hope this is of use to you. Thanks for reading and responding so quickly and have a great rest of your weekend. Um, so if you want to check out uh, her website, it's emilydenise.com. I'll put the link on our website. It's uh, E-M-I-L-Y-D-E-N-I-S-E. And... Um, yeah, Squarespace is is awesome. I love it. Uh, I made a website uh, to show off my dog pictures and music that I that I do. Um, they have really cool templates by world class designers, and you can showcase anything: your work, your blog, you, know, you publish content, even sell products and services of all kinds in just a few clicks. You can customize it up the wazoo. It's optimized for mobile right out of the box. Nothing to install, no patches or upgrades ever. They have great customer service if you need it. And, you know, a dream is just a great idea that doesn't have a website yet. Make it a reality with Squarespace. So head to squarespace.com for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code MENTAL to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com, offer code MENTAL. All right, I'm going to read as many surveys as I can get through um, because, as I mentioned earlier in the show, I'm running behind having a recorded those friends of mine um, a little earlier. This is a struggle in a sentence filled out by a tater tot someone picked up off the ground. I don't think that's specific enough. And uh, she writes about her PTSD. I definitely had a childhood, but I seem to have misplaced it. About living with an abuser until I got out, my only goal in life was to make it through each day. Wow. Wow. It's, it's amazing how we can lower our expectations. You know, I think there's like a healthy lowering of expectations for what we experience in life. And then there is a lowering of expectations that's really unhealthy and uh, self-harming. 
This is uh, from a survey called uh, Sexual Abuse or Violation of Young Male by Older Female. And this was filled out by a woman who calls herself bruised, not broken. And she writes, I had an unhealthy relationship with a former student. It began when he was 17 and I was 38. It ended when I was 42 after I performed oral sex on him. This was initiated by him and it was awful. He forced it on me, held my head down, and I felt trapped and disgusting. I stopped communicating with him and I have shut down sexually after this. Oh, and I should also mention that she... uh, 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 chose, uh, you can select different boxes under what category you think it goes into. And she chose both, uh, I am a female who seduced a much younger male and I am a female who was seduced by a much younger, uh, male. Uh, she continues, uh, I've told no one. I do not think it is normal at all, uh, what happened. And I have so much shame and guilt about this. Uh, remembering, uh, the feelings that come up, um, it makes me feel regretful, shameful, and physically ill. Uh, do you feel any damage was done? I don't feel I did any damage to him, but I do feel I have caused myself a lot of harm. And um, and that's it. Yes, that's uh, that's it. You know, I I wonder though, um, because that was you were in a position of power if you started uh, an inappropriate relationship with him, you know, when he was 17 and you were 38 and he was your student. Um, And I'm not saying this to try to make you feel guilty, um, but one of the reasons I wanted to read the survey is I believe it's possible that both people can be hurt by each other. Um, And so it's not as much of a blame thing as it is of trying to find out how can we be good to ourselves and good to other people and not have the two be mutually exclusive. Uh, but thank you for sharing that. Uh, female heart, dis- uh, who is gender fluid describes their DID, which is a dissociative identity disorder. I know I'm happy, but I'm not there for it. Oh, thank you for that. This is a happy moment filled out by Polite at Weddings, and he writes, I used to get nightmares involving my abusive father, who I've cut contact with uh, at the age of 15. I'm now 26. He's a large guy, over 350 pounds, a major weightlifter, and extremely aggressive with a very short fuse and fragile ego. He sounds like a great guy to be around. I think you're making too big of a deal. Uh, needless to say, he terrorized my siblings and I for years. In these dreams, he would be chasing me and I would be unable to fight him off. I would try to punch him, but it would feel as if my arm were moving through molasses. In one, he actually caught me, threw me to the ground, and put a gun to my stomach, pulling the trigger as I jolted awake. A couple of years ago, I attended my sister's wedding, and because she was so desperate to believe we are all a big happy family, our abuser was invited too. I chose not to acknowledge him for the whole weekend, But uh, we were there, but as I expected, he was determined to find any crack through which to slither back into my life. So, just after the wedding ceremony, we were seated for dinner, and of course, my abuser was seated across the table from me. Partway through the meal, I poured myself a coffee and began to drink it. Noticing that I had not put any cream or sugar in, he picked up a cream packet, shoved it at his as close to my face as he could reach and started saying, there's cream here. You want some cream? I took a sip of my black coffee and ignored him as he continued, hey, do you want some cream? There's some right here. 
After 10 years of dead silence in response to his persistent attempts to contact me, I finally had enough. I looked him dead in the eye and in a firm, stable voice said, would you leave me alone? And because we were at a wedding ceremony and I decided to be polite, I added what was probably the world's most aggressive, please. As I said this, he jumped back, eyes wide as he was clearly caught off guard at this resistance. Half the people in the room turned to see what was going on. I guess I was louder than I thought, question mark. And suddenly, this 350-pound man looked much smaller. I've had one dream involving my abuser since that night. In it, he tried to get up in my face about something, and immediately I told him to shut up and fuck off. I've never seen him since. Thank you for sharing that. Man, cutting contact with a parent is so hard, and I can't imagine how much harder it must be when you have siblings that can't accept that and want the two of you to reunite, especially if they want to play the song Reunited by Peaches and Herb. My God, that is a fucking dated reference. This is a shame and secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Micropeen, uh, which I assume uh, means micropenis, Micropeen Woes. Um, and he is straight in his 50s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, never been sexually abused, but he has been emotionally um, abused. And he writes, my childhood was not great. Divorce, father, suicide, mother, and favorite aunt slash uncle alcoholism. Mom would rope the door handles of my sister and I to lock us in our rooms while a boyfriend would continually beat her. We could hear everything but couldn't do anything, including when he raped her outside our doors. Jesus. Any positive experiences with the abusers? Absolutely. I loved my mother more than life and couldn't understand ever why she didn't make me a priority, why we were so poor, why we children had to fend for ourselves, why she was always sick. I blamed the MD who suggested she have a couple of glasses of wine to calm down at night. I never blamed her. Um, darkest Thoughts my sexual fantasies, not completely ashamed of them, but I rely on rape porn and prone sex, where the male is on top of the prone female, anally penetrating her with some force. I am not ashamed of my daydreams of being a sniper slash assassin who takes out thousands of homeless meth addicts and gang members. Uh, darkest secrets. When I'm tired, stressed, or not medicated well, I act on impulse, usually sexually, out of frustration. I will grab girls' boobs, focus on younger girls in a predatory fashion, uh, in parentheses, attracted to their innocence, always out of a mix of frustration sexually and the thrill of the taboo. Um, while it is taboo, it's also more than that. You know, it's that is an, an, an act of, of hostility and violence, uh, really more than um, than sexual. You know, sex is the vehicle for it, but um, from all the mental health professionals and, and uh, law enforcement people that I've ever heard discuss it, it is it, um, it's a it's an act of, of violence, and underneath it is um, clearly uh, anger. But if you haven't talked to anybody about it, uh, you know you owe it to yourself and um, the people around you to to get help for this because. 
um, uh, that's, that's a, a walking powder keg and, um, there's no reason to not get help for that because not only are you helping yourself, but you're helping somebody potentially not be a victim, um, of your acting out. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Uh, Brother, sister, mother, son, father, daughter, uh, realistic scenarios, rape situation. Um, and then he writes uh, a particular uh, movie, scene in a particular movie is his go-to. Uh, he writes, I don't mind sharing that. I try to live my life as open as possible to help remove stigma. Um, it would it would be awesome if... If you apply that to your acting out as well, and by that I don't mean sharing that you know with anybody, but sharing it with the with the therapist, because I think the more we keep things in, uh, the more it grows, and shame and anger uh, tend to feed each other, uh, as well as depression and and other things. Uh, what, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to tell an old girlfriend that she frustrated me always, and that's why I would act out with her. She won't talk to me or look at me anymore. She turned around when we saw each other in a grocery store. So frustrating. I want to tell my mother that I understand, that I love her, and that I'm so mad at her for not being a mother. Even with years of therapy, I still struggle with my past. I still have dreams about her, awful dreams, where she dies shamefully, awful dreams where I try to have sex with her. What, if anything, do you wish for? I want to be loved and supported by a faithful partner. Um, have you shared these things with others? Yes, in therapy situations with strong therapists who I knew wouldn't judge me ever, who I knew cared about my health and me. Of course, that always led to transference. Um, that's, a, for those of you who don't know, it's a thing where um, uh, somebody's issue begins to um, bleed into the dynamic or relationship between a, a therapist and their client. Um, yeah, so you know where the either the client kind of um, suddenly wants the therapist to be their lover or fulfill some role that they didn't have, or the therapist. Uh, I think when the therapist does it, maybe it's called countertransference. I'm not. I'm not sure. But uh, how do you feel after writing these things down? I don't mind at all. I hope others realize they aren't alone at all. Uh, anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Um, uh, don't give up until you exhaust the options. Medication therapy and helping others. Helping others can be the best therapy of all. Thank you for sharing that, and thank you for your, your honesty about um, the the acting out because a lot of times um we let's put it this way we don't get a whole lot of people discussing their um current forms of being abusive to other people uh when it when it comes to that and as difficult as those things are to hear we as a society need to learn more about what's underneath it you know the the me too campaign is a um much much needed revolution i hope that 
we go one step further and begin asking, why are there so many of these men and women perpetrating uh, the, these acts? What? How are they created? Uh, you know, if if instead of acts of sexual aggression, these were forest fires, we would look into the source of what's creating the fires. Well, why shouldn't we do that? Because they're people. Um, Just writing them off as dirty or bad or they need to be banished, uh, that doesn't make the world safer for future generations. But trying to understand them, trying to understand somebody doesn't mean you approve of what they do or what they did. Uh, this is a struggle in a sentence filled out by Prozac and Cats. I love that. Uh, about her depression, she writes, like feeling the intense, intensely conflicting emotions when looking at old or sentimental pictures, but feeling this way during every insignificant daily moment that, quote, normal people get to experience with blissful indifference. Uh, about her ADD, let's just say this is probably my 10th attempt to finish this survey. Uh, oh boy, do I relate to this next one about her anxiety. Agreeing impulsively to social plans and then spending the rest of the time leading up to the event thinking of an excuse about why I can't go that I haven't used already. Uh, about alcoholism and drug addiction, like being in love with the water I'm drowning in. Oh, those are so good. Thank you for that. This I'm going to fast forward. I can feel myself fading. Uh, This was filled out by You Can Blame Me. Uh, It's a struggle in a sentence. And about her depression, she writes, My depression feels like a big gray blanket. When I'm wrapped in it, I can't laugh or cry. I just lay and sleep. My God, do I relate to that. Um, She also writes that she is uh, a professional ballet dancer. In a snapshot from her life, she writes, My mother is an engulfing narcissist. She has told me that I am an extension of her. I used to love that my mom cared so much about my life, but as I've moved away from home and become independent, she needs to know everything that happens in my life. She demands that I tell her everything. She asks... um, She asks him to tell her how my sex life is and yells at me when I refuse to share things with her. I think she meant she asked me to tell her. Um, uh, When I tried to talk to her about boundaries, she flat out said, fuck boundaries. Uh, What, did you learn that in therapy? She has told me that she has the right to know everything that happens in my life. She tells me I'm a selfish, spoiled brat because I don't tell her things anymore. I'm only 21 and I don't want to cut her out of my life, but I feel like I might need to someday. I got into a relationship with a man who is just like my mom. I hate myself for letting all this happen. Um, Thank you so much for, for sharing that, and I'm so sorry that that is the the hand that you were dealt and that that you are finding yourself repeating that um, and the people you choose, just know that that is super common. And in my experience, um, one can't change without the other changing. I've, I've um, or let's put it this way, learning to set boundaries with people closest to us in our life um, can be a template for 
who we choose and how we interact with people in our life from then on. Uh, because we get to feel the benefits of the freedom of giving someone consequences when they cross our boundaries. And so I think working with a the therapist, uh, you could come up with some some boundaries and don't give a shit what her opinions are of her boundaries. You know, a great one to start with might be that you don't talk to me in a way that you wouldn't talk to um, somebody that you work with. Um, you know, would she say, would she talk to uh, a coworker or a boss uh, with the same tone that she talks to you? Um, I don't know. You deserve so much more than that. And um, you can't save your mom. And trying to, she might drag you down with her. I know that sounds dramatic, but I see it happen all the time. The guilt of cutting contact with her will not kill you, but the insanity of trying to get her to treat you in a way that you deserve to be treated might. Uga Booga Pinball uh, shares... Uh, he, he doesn't name it, but he says, being almost 47 years old and still feeling 14 whenever someone says, we need to talk. <laughs> when I just read that one, my stomach tightened a little bit. Oh, do I hate that. We need to talk. Oh. Fucka you, writes about her anxiety. I would rather pluck out every one of my nose hairs individually than have a two-minute conversation with a stranger. Oh, so good. So good. Uh, any ideas to make the podcast better? More showdowns with mean DJ voice. I know you can take him, Paul. If shit gets real, just grab him by the man bun and threaten to cut it off. Oh, my God. He would have a man bun, wouldn't he? Actually, he wouldn't have the balls to get a man bun. He would. He would wish that he could get a man bun because he he would never he would probably he would probably have a haircut that was actually 30 years old because that's the last time he felt safe socially um this is a shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself AJB and she is straight, in her 40s, raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. I'm not sure if this counts as sexual abuse because of age, but when I was in 10th or 11th grade, my brother, who was about one and a half years younger, was sleeping in the same bed as me. I don't remember why. During the night, I woke to him fingering me. I freaked out and he apologized. I feel partially guilty because I was wearing a, a quote, girly PJ outfit. Uh, silk cami and silk short shorts and thought maybe it was too tempting to him. That's why he did it. I told him that it was wrong and we'd never speak about it again. Fast forward to about 15 years later, he went to jail for sexually abusing his daughter uh, when she was a minor. To this day, I feel guilty for never telling anyone because, quote, maybe he could have been stopped or helped before harming his daughter and causing permanent damage. And then uh, 
frowny, frowny face uh, she put there. You are not to blame for what he does or who he hurts, and it was not your job to bring justice to him. It, it is somebody's choice what they decide to do with what happened. And I seriously doubt um, someone as sick as your brother um, would have been stopped uh, by something like that. I don't know. Who knows? But it, the responsibility is 1,000% his for doing that to his daughter. And it doesn't matter to me that he was younger than you when he touched you without your permission in your sleep. Um, and him being in high school, you know, that's not, this isn't a, you know, first grader doing it to a second grader. Um, that's somebody at that age is, is more aware. Yeah, they're still a kid, but I'm, I'm not talking as much about his responsibility and what he did to you, but in terms of you giving weight to what happened, because that's, that's fucking traumatizing, traumatizing. That's fucking traumatizing. That's how a guy from the forties, that's, that's my new character, 40s therapist. Oh, yikes. You, that's a cave of bats you're living with. Any positive experiences with the abusers? My brother, he's gotten the help and counseling he needed. He served his time. He'll be forever registering as a sex offender. He has regretted everything he's done and the damage he's caused. He's been able to apologize to his daughter. She has forgiven him. I go back and forth with what he has done. I have good days and bad days. I believe the crime he committed to me and my niece should never be forgotten because then the risk of it happening again uh, could occur. It sucks. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't think forgetting what somebody has done is ever a good thing. Um, but, um, I, I, I don't see that as weakness or, um, forgetting it. I don't think helps, helps anything. Um, trying to come to terms with it, maybe, but it's really whatever, whatever it is that the, the survivor needs to be their healthiest self is what the choice is, you know, unless it's going out in public with a hammer and actually if I were to go out in public with a hammer I think I would go to a farmer's market I think that's something about it just feels right uh, continuing um, about her dad I hated the childhood I had with him as a father uh, as I got older and braver, I told him the issues I had with him. He listened and apologized. I never knew how valuable saying I'm sorry could be. I didn't even know that's what I needed to hear. We were, we were able to resolve our issues. He passed away very unexpectedly uh, in 2001. I had left nothing unresolved with him. For this, I am thankful. I miss him every day and have no regrets for speaking up. About my mom, again, I got older and braver. I told her how fucked up things were growing up with her as a mother and her choice of men. She has apologized, and we have had some nice times, some great times together. What a great example of 
somebody taking their power back and that it's not a selfish thing. It's a survival thing. You know, so much of what we do, whether it's healthy or unhealthy, is just to fucking survive this crazy planet we live on. Oh boy, it's not so. I don't I don't know what to do with him. Oh look, those dames ain't dames. Uh, I just want to say what a great example you are of somebody that's been through the fucking ringer but has decided that you're worth it. And and the the woman uh, who wrote about having the mother who said that she deserves to know everything about her, I hope you listen to this episode and you get to hear the gifts that this woman gets from speaking her truth unapologetically. You know, I heard a, a phrase, uh, I saw somebody had a thing on the internet, and I forget who it's attributed to, um, but the, the phrase was, speak your truth even if your voice shakes. Um, darkest thoughts, can't think right now, too emotionally spent from answering the other questions. And you know what? It's It's like if we're not willing in our life to do things that emotionally spend us, you know, with the greater goal of long-term emotional health, if we're not willing to do that um, or have difficult conversations to people that are intertwined in our lives, uh, it's a shit show. It's a shit show. Thank you for that. And then we have an awfulsome moment um, this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Alien. And she writes, uh, Today I went to my first session with a new psychotherapy group. After, list- after listening to the podcast and hearing Paul speak so highly uh, of it, I agreed with my therapist and psychiatrist to start attending support groups. I did CBT group therapy for several weeks and found it made me feel worse as I couldn't relate to anyone there. Um and then today, I, uh, my therapist and I have one-to-one sessions, uh, and she's away on holiday for two weeks, and I was informed that the group would have two confirmed members for the next six weeks. At this point, I wasn't so keen on starting going again, so I said I would think about it. Several days later, depression kicks in hardcore, and I can't shake the suicidal thoughts. The group was my only option. Today, I attended. Today, I could say to someone the first time, I relate to that. And they could say to me the same. I am finally getting the group experience you talk so fondly about. There was an elderly woman in the group. Excuse me. There was an elderly woman in the group. She is an inpatient after jumping in front of a train. She's very depressed and suicidal. During the group, she said how in other groups, everyone looks at her differently and looks shocked when she talks about her attempt in suicidal idealization. When I tell my story, I talk about it factually. I talk about my mentally, emotionally, slightly physically abusive childhood, my realization that the things that happened to me were in fact wrong, still working on that, overcoming anorexia, 
moving out at 17 to live in, quote, supported lodgings via a homeless charity, living with the alcoholic landlord in a drug-addicted house, living off food banks, working different jobs, to eventually move again and again before now renting my own flat. With survival mode over came crippling anxiety and depression. Several therapists later, I find the one who wanted me to get in touch with the emotions I didn't feel as a child, remembering and telling her in great deal all the fucked up things that happened. What a shock when I was re-traumatized. How did that happen? Uh, Question mark. Now I face current therapy that brings up a whole load of arguably more fucked up things, dealing with intense panic attacks, suicidal thoughts, agoraphobia, etc., etc., etc. You're so strong, she says. I don't have a story like that, and I gave up. I tell her with a big smile that the only reason I stuck to my meal plan, gaining weight after months of starvation, and working hard to make money, was so I could convince everyone I was well, move away, and kill myself quietly where no one knew me. That was my motivation the whole time, and really still is now in some ways. When I said this, her eyes lit up and a wide smile appeared on her face. She looked like a different person. I think for the first time since she was admitted, she wasn't met with a look of horror at the mention of a suicide, but one of understanding. But you haven't tried to kill yourself, she continues. I wish I could, I reply, but I've got a massive phobia of being sick, so I won't be able to kill myself in any feasible way. My illnesses are actually keeping me alive. She and the rest of the group start laughing as we discuss the different ways I could kill myself that could work, namely hiring a hitman to kill me. But alas, my agoraphobia swoops in to save the day. Because of it, I had to leave my job so I have no money for rent, bills, or a hitman. The room continues to laugh, but I can see the therapist nervously moving in her seat, likely wanting to move on from the topic of how we can kill ourselves. This is a moment I will forever cherish. That's the kind of shit you get to experience in a good support group. There's some bad ones, but a good one. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by dissociating and loving it. And uh, she writes, I'm sitting in my car after a particularly helpful therapy appointment, just processing and enjoying what I think is the happiest moment I've felt in two months. My dissociation has been the subject of my sessions lately, and a month ago, my therapist tied my binge eating habit to other dissociative behaviors. Today, my therapist asked me, do you ever get sick and still, quote, feel fine? I said, oh, definitely. I told her about the time I had a 103-degree fever and was, quote, fully functioning at work for three days before my body collapsed. The only way it knew how to tell me to fucking rest. She asked, and you've mentioned that you often never, quote, feel hungry and have to remind yourself to eat. I said, yes. She smiled at me kindly and said, it sounds like after years of dissociating, your brain isn't really listening to your body when it's hungry or too full when you binge or when you're sick or even when you're feeling good. I'm going home with a list of body awareness, mindfulness exercises and a referral to a massage therapist. Sessions don't always feel, quote, productive, but finding my current therapist, and then parentheses, third time's the charm, and being able to totally trust her 
It's beautiful to realize that she rem- that she remembers a lot and pays attention to details during those sessions I deemed, quote, unproductive. Extra fun, happy moment? I am a straight woman and a few months ago found myself with feelings for my female therapist. It was disconcerting until I remembered what you said, Paul, so I laughed to myself instead, happy to know that I had those feelings because my, mo- my body and mind did intuitively pick up on at least one thing, that my therapist was truly listening and cared about me even just for that hour. Two things I've never had from friends or parental figures in my entire life. There is nothing like feeling seen and heard and empathized with in a way that isn't inappropriate or overwhelming or invasive. And I think it's a reason why a lot of us withdraw is because if we had any attention, it was always unhealthy attention disguised as healthy attention. And that's a really hard thing for somebody to understand that has never experienced healthy attention. Um, Anyway, enough of my yakking. That's all you do is yak. (laughs) Can't decide if I am a fan of this guy or if I want to bring him to the farmer's market with a hammer in my back pocket. Uh, oh, we're at 144 minutes. Thank you for all the support uh, this last week, uh, all the financial uh, support um, that that you guys do, and we certainly could use more. Um, I have a bunch of links on the page uh, on our website for um, different ways that you can support the podcast. Uh And I don't feel like going to all of them now because I'm tired. But spread the word through social media. That really helps. Um, But I hope you heard something in this episode that made you feel a little better, a little more peaceful, enlightened, determined, gassy. Again, I'm a little tired. But never forget that you're not alone. And thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.